0: Hi listeners, this is the 80,000 Hours Podcast, where each week we have an unusually in-depth conversation about one of the world's most pressing problems and how you can use your career to solve it. I'm Rob Wiblin, Director of Research at 80,000 Hours. Today's guest is helping to found a new think tank in Washington, DC, focused on guiding us through an era where AI is likely to have more and more influence over war, intelligence gathering and international relations. I was excited to talk to Helen because we think working on AI policy and strategy could be an opportunity to have a very large and positive impact on the world for at least some of our listeners. And Helen has managed to advance her career in that field incredibly quickly. So I wanted to learn more about how she'd managed to actually do that. It's also just a fascinating and very topical issue. Uh, Just today, Henry Kissinger, uh, Eric Schmidt and Daniel Hudenlocker wrote an article warning that, quote, uh, AI could destabilize everything from nuclear detente to human friendships. Uh, That article was out in the the Atlantic. If you want some background before launching into this episode, I can definitely recommend listening to episode 31 with uh, Alan Defoe for a uh, brisk and I'd say pretty compelling description of the challenges governments might face adapting to transformative AI. But you certainly don't need to listen to that one first. Before that, just a quick announcement or two. Firstly, if you're considering doing a philosophy PhD, our newest team member, Arden Kohler, just finished rewriting our career review of philosophy careers. Uh, so we'll link to that in the show notes. Secondly, last year we did a few episodes about operations management careers uh, in high-impact organizations, especially some nonprofits. I just wanted to flag that our podcasts and articles on that topic have been pretty successful at encouraging people to to enter that area, uh, which has made the job market for that career path uh, more competitive than it was 12 months ago. That said, we still list a lot of operations-related roles on on our job board, uh, At current count, uh, 113 of them, in fact. Speaking of our job board, uh, I should add that it currently lists 70 jobs relating to AI strategy and governance uh, for you to browse and consider applying for. And needless to say, we'll link to the job board in the show notes. Finally, in the interest of full disclosure, note that the biggest donor to CSET, uh, where Helen works, is also a financial supporter of 80,000 Hours. All right, without further ado, here's Helen. Today, I'm speaking with Helen Toner. Helen is the Director of Strategy at Georgetown University's new Centre for Security and Emerging Technology, otherwise known as CSET, uh, which was set up in part with a $55 million grant from the Open Philanthropy Project, which is their largest grant to date. She previously worked as a senior research analyst at the Open Philanthropy Project, where she advised policymakers and grantmakers on AI policy and strategy. Between working at OpenPhil and joining SixSet, Helen lived in Beijing for nine months, studying the Chinese AI ecosystem as a research affiliate for the University of Oxford's Center for the Governance of AI. Thanks for coming on the podcast, Helen. Great to be here. So uh, I hope to get getting to talking about careers in uh, AI policy and strategy and the time that you spent living in China. Uh, but first, what are you doing at the moment and why do you think it's really important work?
1: Yeah. So I spent the last six to nine months setting up this center that you just mentioned, the Center for Security and Emerging Technology at Georgetown. And basically the mission of the center is to create high quality analysis and policy recommendations on issues at the intersection broadly of emerging technology and national security. But specifically right now, we are focusing on uh, the intersection of AI and national security as a place to start and a place to focus for the next couple of years. And we think this is important work because of how AI is gradually reshaping all kinds of aspects of society, but uh, especially relevant to our work, reshaping how military and intelligence and national security more generally functions and how the US should be thinking about it. And we think that getting that right is really important and getting it wrong could be really bad. And the amount of work that was currently being put into analyzing some of the more detailed questions about how that looks and, and what the US government should be doing in response, uh, we thought was a little bit lacking. And so we wanted to bring together a team that could really look into some of those questions in depth and, and try and come up with yeah, more accurate analysis and, and better recommendations.
0: Let's let's dive into actually talking about some AI policy issues and like what people get right and what people get wrong about this. So a couple of weeks ago, you gave evidence to the U.S.-China Commission, which is, I guess, a commission that was set up by, by Congress to report back to them on issues to do with like technology in the U.S. and China. That's right. Uh, and the title of your presentation was um, Technology, Trade, and Military Civil Fusion, uh, China's Pursuit of Artificial Intelligence, New Materials, and New Energy. Uh, we'll stick up a link to, to your testimony there.
1: Yeah, that was the, the title of the hearing that I testified at. Oh,
0: that was the hearing. Okay, right. <laughs> you didn't write that yourself. <laughs> um, how was that, that experience?
1: Yeah, it was very interesting. It was a real honor to, to go and Testify to that commission, and it was in a Senate committee hearing room, which is a very kind of intimidating place to to speak. It was encouraging as well that the questions that they asked so they sent some questions in advance that I prepared written testimony for and then there was a uh, you know the the hearing itself was mostly Q&A and it was encouraging that the questions that they sent were very related to the types of topics that CSET had already been working on so actually while I was preparing I was kind of scrolling through our Google Drive looking at the you know first and second draft reports that people had been putting together and just kind of cribbing all of their answers which was 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 really great
0: how is DC thinking about this issue? Were the people who are, who are interviewing you and asking questions like very engaged? It sounds like maybe they, they're really on the ball about this.
1: Yeah, it's definitely a big topic. So a huge topic in the security community generally is the rise of China, how the US should relate to China. And AI is obviously easy to map onto that space. So there's a lot of interest in what AI means for the U.S.-China relationship. I was really impressed by the quality of the commissioner's questions. It's always hard to know in situations like this if it's the commissioner's themselves or just their excellent staff, but I, I would guess that at the very least they had really, really good staff support because they asked several questions where, you know, it's kind of easy to ask a slightly misinformed version of the question that doesn't really make sense and is kind of hard to answer straightforwardly. But instead, they would ask a a more intelligent version that showed that they had read up on how the technology worked and on what sort of was concerning and, and what made less sense to be concerned
0: about. That's really good. Is is the government and the commission approaching this from the perspective of like ah no China like China is rising and threatening the US or is it is it more interest in like the potential of technology itself as well?
1: So definitely different answers for the US government as a whole. Though I mean it's hard to answer anything for the US government as a whole <laughs> versus this particular commission. So this commission was actually set up specifically to consider risks to the US from engagement with China. So I think I believe it was set up during the, the process where China was entering the World Trade Organization, and there was much more integration between the US and China. So I believe this commission was set up to then be a kind of check to consider are there downsides? Are there risks we should be considering? So this commission and this hearing was very much from the perspective of what are the risks here? Should we be concerned? Should we be placing restrictions or withdrawing from certain types of arrangements and, and things like that?
0: Yeah, so given that, um, what, what were the key points that you really wanted to, to communicate to the, to, to the commissioners, make sure they, they, they remembered?
1: I think the biggest one was to think about AI as a much broader technology than most sort of specific technologies that, that we talk about and think about. So I think it's really important to keep in mind that AI is this very, very general purpose set of technologies that has applications and implications for all kinds of sectors across the economy and across society more generally. And the reason I think this is important is because I think commissions like the U.S.-China Commission and uh, other parts of government are often thinking about AI the way they might think about, you know, a specific rocket or an aircraft or something like that, where it is both possible and desirable to contain the technology or to sort of secure, you know, U.S. innovations in that technology. And the way that AI works is just so different because it is such a More general use technology and also one where the research environment is so open and distributed, where, you know, almost all research innovations are are shared freely on the Internet for anyone to access. A lot of development is done using open source platforms like TensorFlow or PyTorch that, you know, for-profit companies have decided to make open source and and share freely. And so a big thing that I wanted to leave with the commission was that if they're thinking about this as a, a widget that they need to kind of lock safely within the U.S.'s borders, that they're going to make mistakes in their policy recommendations.
0: So, I guess they're imagining it as kind of like a tank or something like that. some some new like yeah, piece of physical equipment that they can control and and their the temptation is just like, keep it for ourselves, make sure that no one else can get access to it. But that's just like a total fantasy in the case of uh, like a piece of software or just a, you know a much more general piece of technology, like like machine learning,
1: yeah, especially in the case of machine learning where it's not a single piece of software. I think it's I think it's likely that there will be. Uh, well, you know there there are already controls that apply to specific pieces of software doing specific, you know, for example, militarily relevant things. But if you're talking about AI or machine learning, that's just I sometimes find it useful to mentally replace AI with advanced statistics. I think I got that from from Ryan Calo at, at <laughs> yeah. University of Washington. We have to keep um, the t
0: test for ourselves. It's
1: like <laughs> <laughs> right, um, where. You know, whenever you're saying something about AI, try replacing it with advanced statistics and see if it makes sense.
0: Yeah, um, I guess. I mean, I think I think there was like some statistical methods that they, that like people were developing in World War One and World War Two that they tried to keep secret. Uh, oh, interesting for a, for a piece of analysis. But I mean, is that like, related
1: to cryptography or something else? Oh,
0: well, there's, there's cryptography, but no, also other things. I think oh, there was, there's that famous problem where they were trying to estimate the number of tanks that uh, Germany had produced, and they were getting they would get that the Germans were stupid enough, it turned out, to like literally give serial numbers to them that was sequential. And then they were trying to use statistics to use like the serial numbers that they observed on like the tanks that they destroyed to to calculate how many existed. And I think that was like, uh, yeah, a, a difficult problem that they put a bunch of resources into and then it was kind of like regarded as strategically advantageous to have that. I think there's probably like various other cases, although they, they wouldn't expect you how to keep that secret beyond like a year or two, right?
1: Yeah, well, or, or maybe- they're in, the
0: middle of a, they're in the middle of a total war there as well. It's a very different situation.
1: Very different. And also that that I think is more analogous to a specific application. So perhaps a specific machine learning model or something like that, or a specific data set that is going to be used um, to train a, a critical system of some kind. Yeah, I think I think protecting statistics more generally from spreading is it would be a much- <laughs> Much
0: lift. <laughs> yeah, uh, I'll put up a link to, to, to that story about the tanks. Hopefully I haven't butchered it too badly. So what bad things do you think will happen if the US kind of does take the approach of trying to, uh, you know, bottle uh, advanced statistics and keep keep it, uh, keep it those advances to themselves?
1: Yeah, I think essentially, if you think of AI as this one technology that has military implications that you need to keep safely in your borders, then you would really expect that there are various things you can do to restrict The flow of that information externally. So two obvious examples would be restricting the flow of people. So restricting immigration from perhaps from everywhere or perhaps just from competitor adversary nations. And then a second thing would be putting export controls on the technology, which would actually have a similar effect in that uh, export control technologies like yeah, aerospace technologies, for example, there's restrictions on, it's what's called a deemed export, basically, if you have a lab in the US doing something, and a foreign national walks in and, and starts working on it, that's deemed as an export, because it's kind of been exported into their foreign brain. Um, so... Uh, I guess we've
0: both got foreign brains here right now. Indeed, so. <laughs> yeah,
1: I'm working on it. Um, so I think those kinds of restrictions make sense if you First, if the technology is possible to, to restrict. And second, if you're going to get buy-in from researchers that it's desirable to restrict. So yeah, you can say if you're working on rockets, rockets are basically missiles. Uh, you don't want you know North Korea to be getting your missile technology. You probably don't want China to be getting your missile. You probably don't want Turkey to be you know whatever. Uh, it's very easy to build expectations in the field that that needs to stay in the country where it's being developed. And AI is different in two ways. One is that I think it just would be really, really hard to actually effectively contain any particular piece of AI research. And then second, and, and this reinforces the first one, it's going to be extremely difficult to get buy-in from researchers that this is some key military advance that the U.S. needs to contain. And so I think the most likely effect of any, anything that uh, researchers perceive as restrictive or as making it harder for them to do their work is mostly going to result in the best researchers going abroad. And so, you know, many American researchers, if they wanted to go somewhere else, would probably look to Canada or the UK. But there are also plenty of people currently, you know, using their talents in the US uh, who are originally Chinese or originally Russian who might go home or might go somewhere else. And it just seems like an attempt to try and keep the technology here would not actually work and would reduce the US's ability to continue developing the technology into the future.
0: I'm not sure if this story is true, quite true either, but I, I think I remember reading that there's some encryption technologies that are like that are regarded as export controlled by the United States, but are just like widely used by everyone overseas. So it's it's kind of this like farcical thing where they've like defined certain things as, as dangerous, but of course it's like just impossible to stop other people from copying and and creating them, um, and so it kind of just is an impediment to to the U.S. like developing products that use these technologies. Maybe, maybe I'll double check if that's true, but I guess it, yeah, you could imagine that it is, and that's kind of indicative of just how hard it is to stop software from from crossing borders
1: yeah i don't I don't know about that specific case. It certainly sounds plausible. A thing that is not the same but is kind of analogous is that if you're speaking with someone who holds a security clearance, you can get into trouble if you share with them information that is supposed to be classified but that actually everyone has access to. so things like talking about the Snowden leaks can be really problematic if you're talking to someone who yeah who holds holds a clearance and who is not supposed to be discussing that information with you, even though that is being widely published.
0: yeah. I guess, is that just a case where the rules are kind of set up for a particular environment and they, they, they don't imagine this edge case where something that's classified has become completely public and it hasn't been declassified and they're like stuck? It's like everyone knows and everyone's talking about it, but you can't talk about it. Ah, yeah,
1: I guess so. I, again, yeah. I don't know the details of this case. I just know that it's something, something yeah. to look out for.
0: Are there any examples of kind of, yeah, software advances or like ideas that people have managed to keep secret for, for, for long periods of time as, as a kind of compar- competitive advantage?
1: Yeah, I think the best, most similar example here would be offensive cyber capabilities. Mm. Uh, unfortunately, it's a very secretive area, so I don't know many details. But that's certainly something where we're talking entirely in terms of software. Um, and there do seem to be differences in, in the capabilities between different groups and different states. Again, it's perhaps more analogous you know, each technique is perhaps more analogous to a single AI model as opposed to the field of machine learning as a whole.
0: Yeah, and I guess the whole like cyber warfare domain is like has been extremely like locked down from the very beginning. Whereas, it I guess machine learning is almost the exact opposite. It's like extremely open, even I think by the standards of academic fields.
1: That's right, and I think again here the the, the general purpose part comes into play. Where I think if computer security researchers. Felt like their work could make massive differences in healthcare and in energy and in education. You know, maybe they would be less inclined to go work for the NSA and sit in a windowless basement. But given that it is, in fact, you know, purely an offensive or defensive technology, um, it's it's much easier to to contain in that way.
0: So that was your main bottom line for the committee: was yeah, uh, you're not going to be able to lock this down so easily. You can't, don't don't put on export controls and things like that. Did you have any like other, other messages that, that that you thought were important to communicate?
1: Yeah, I think the biggest other thing would be to really remember how much strength the US draws from the fact that it does have these liberal democratic values that are at the core of all of the institutions and how how the society works as a whole, and to double down on those rather than, I think it's easy to look to China and, and see things that the Chinese government is doing and ways that Chinese companies relate to the Chinese government and things like that, and feel kind of jealous. But I think ultimately, the US is not going to be able to out China, China. And so instead, it needs to do its best to really place those values front and center.
0: Yeah. So what do you think um, people get most wrong about the strategic implications of AI? I'm, I'm especially wondering if there's kind of exaggerated fears that people have, which uh, kind of maybe you read about in the in the media, and you kind of roll, roll your eyes at the, at the CSET offices.
1: Yeah, I think maybe a big one is around autonomous weapons and how You know, of all the effects that AI is likely to have on security and on warfare, how big a part of that is specifically autonomous weapons versus all kinds of other things. I think it's very easy to think, to picture in your head, you know, a robot that can harm you in some way, whether it be a drone or some kind of land-based system, whatever it might be. But I think in practice, while I do expect those systems to be deployed and I do expect them to change how warfare works, I think there's going to be a much kind of deeper and more uh, through going way in which AI permeates through all of our systems, in a similar way to how electricity in the early 20th century didn 't just you know create the possibility to have electrically powered weapons, but it, it changed the entirety of how you know the armed forces worked, so it changed communications, it changed transport, it changed logistics and supply chains, and I think similarly AI is going to just affect how absolutely everything is done, and so I think an excessive focus on weapons whether that be from people looking from the outside and, and being concerned about what weapons might be developed but also from you know the inside perspective of thinking about you know what the department of defense for example should be doing about ai i think the most important stuff is actually going to be getting its digital infrastructure in order you know they're they're setting up a massive cloud contract to change the way they do data storage and and all of that thinking about how they store data and how that flows between different different teams and how it can be applied i think that is going to be a much bigger part of, when we look back in, you know, 50 or 100 years, what we think about how how AI has actually had an effect.
0: Do you think that people are kind of too worried or not worried enough about the strategic implications of, of AI, kind of all things considered?
1: Just people in general, just all the people. <laughs> because
0: well, people in DC. <laughs> um, I, I,
1: I think that that still varies hugely by people. Um, I suspect that the the hype levels right now are a little bit higher than they should be. I don't know. I, I do like that classic line about technology that we generally overestimate how big an effect it's going to have in the short term and underestimate how big it'll be in the long term. I guess if I had to, to overgeneralize, that's how I'd do it.
0: You mentioned that people kind of are quick to like draw analogies for AI that, that sometimes aren't that informative. And I guess people very often reach for this analogy to kind of the Cold War and, and nuclear weapons and like, have, talking about an AI arms race. And I have to admit, I like find myself doing this all the time because when I'm trying to explain to people like why you're interested in the strategic and military implications of AI, that's kind of like a very easy analogy to to reach to. And I guess that's because... like nuclear weapons did like dramatically change the strategic game for like war studies or for like relations between countries. Um, and we think that possibly AI is going to do the same thing, but that doesn't mean that's going to do it in anything like a, a similar manner. Do you agree that it's kind of a poor analogy? And what are the implications of, of people like reaching for an analogy like like nuclear weapons?
1: Yeah, I do think that's not a great analogy. It, it can be useful in some ways, you know, no analogy is perfect. The biggest thing is this question of to what extent is this a discrete technology that has a small number of potential uses versus being this big umbrella term for many, many different things. And you know nuclear weapons are almost the the pinnacle of like it's very discreet. You can say, does this country have the capability to create a nuclear weapon or does it not? If it does, how many does it have? you know of which types? Whereas with AI, you know there's there's no real analogy to that. Another way to I find it useful to think about AI is just sort of gradually improving our software. So you can't say like, is this country using AI in its military systems? Like even with autonomous weapons, you run into the exact same problem of like, oh, like is a landmine an autonomous weapon? Is a, you know, a automated missile defense system an autonomous system in some way? And I think the, the strategic implications of this very discreet thing where you can check whether an adversary has it and you can sort of counter this very discreet technology are very different from just gradually improving all of our systems and making them you know, work better or making them need less human involvement. Like it's it's just a quite a different picture.
0: Yeah, it does seem like there's something quite odd to talk about uh, or to really emphasize an arms race in a technology that, as far as I can tell, is predominantly used now by kind of companies to like suggest videos for you to watch and like music that you're really going to like uh, far more than it's being used for military purposes, at least as far as I can, I can see at the moment. Do you, do, do you agree with that?
1: Yeah, I do agree. And I think also in general, people, again, with the overestimating the short term effects, Right now, the machine learning systems that we have seem so poorly suited to any kind of battlefield use because you know battlefields are characterized by having highly dynamic environments, highly unpredictable. There's an adversary actively trying to undermine your perception and your decision-making ability. And the machine learning systems that we have are just so far from ready for an environment like that. They really are pretty brittle. They're pretty easy to spoof. They do unpredictable things for confusing reasons. So I think really centering... AI weapons as a as, as the the core part of what we're talking about is is definitely premature.
0: Yeah, I guess uh, I think I've heard you say before that the, um, you expect that like the, the first time that this will start to, or that the AI will really start to buy as a security concern is kind of with, with cybersecurity, because that's an environment where it's like much more possible to use machine learning techniques because you know, don't have to have like robots or like deal with a battlefield. Do you, yeah, do, do, do you still think that?
1: Yeah, I mean, in general, it's much easier to make fast progress in software than in hardware. Um, and certainly in terms of, um, if we're talking about states using it, then, you know, the US system for procuring new new hardware is really, really slow. Well, and then software, I won't say that they're necessarily better, but the the way that they're, the way that they basically handle cyber warfare, as far as I know, is is pretty different. So I think it will be much easier for them to yeah, incorporate new technologies, tweak what they're doing, gradually scale up the level of autonomy, as opposed to saying, okay, now we're going to uh, procure this new autonomous tank that will have capabilities X, Y, and Z, which is going to be just a much sort of clunkier and longer term process.
0: When people have asked me to explain like why why we care about AI policy and strategy, I've found myself claiming that is it, like it's possible that we will have like machine learning systems in future that are going to become extremely good at hacking like other other computer systems. And then I was like find myself wondering after I was saying that, is that actually true? Is that something that machine learning is likely to be able to do to just like give you like vastly more power to kind of break into, you know, an adversary country's like computer systems?
1: I expect so. Again, I'm not a, an expert in cybersecurity, but if you think about areas where machine learning does well, somewhere where you can get fast feedback so where you can simulate for example an environment and so you could simulate the software infrastructure of an adversary and and have your system kind of learn quickly how to find vulnerabilities how to erase its own tracks so that it can't be detected versus things like yeah robotics where it's much harder to gather data very quickly i would expect that it will be possible for and and, and there, you know there is there is already plenty of uh, automation of some kind used in these hacking systems, which it's just not necessarily learned automation. It might be hand-programmed. And so it seems like, a, it seems like fertile ground. Again, I would love to know more about the, the technical details so I could get more specific. But it, from the outside, it looks like very fertile ground for ML algorithms to, to gradually play a larger and larger role.
0: Yeah, do you know if ML algorithms have already been been used in designing like cyber attacks or just like hacking computers in general, or is that like something that's kind of yet to, yet to break into the real world?
1: I don't believe that it's widely used. Hmm. Um, okay. There was a competition run by DARPA. Uh, it was called the, the Cyber Grand Challenge or something, which was basically an automated hacking competition. This was in 2016, and I believe that the systems involved there did not use machine learning techniques.
0: So you mentioned earlier that electricity might be a better analogy for artificial intelligence. Yeah, why is that? And how far do you think we can take the analogy? How much can we learn from it?
1: Yeah, I think the, the reason I, I claim it's a better analogy, again, no analogy is perfect, is that it's a technology that has implications across the whole range of different sectors of society. And it basically really changed how we live rather than just making one specific or a small number of specific things possible. And I think that is what we're seeing from, from AI as a, a likely way for things to develop. Who knows what the future holds? I don't want to say definite. In terms of how far you can take it, uh, it's a little hard to say. One, one piece that I would love to look into more, I uh, was actually just before the interview looking up books that I could read on the history of electrification, is thinking about this question of Uh, infrastructure, you know, electricity is is so clearly something where you can't just like buy an electric widget and bring it in and like, now your office is electrified, but you really need to sort of start from the ground up. And it seems to me like AI is is similar. And it would be really interesting to learn about how that how that happened, both in kind of public institutions, but also, you know, in in people's homes and in cities and and in the countryside and, and how that how that was actually rolled out. I don't know, I'll get back to you.
0: So this analogy to electricity has become a little bit more, more, pop, more popular lately. I think uh, Benjamin Garfinkel uh, wrote this article recently, kind of try to be a bit more rigorous about evaluating how strong the arguments are that artificial intelligence is, is like a really important leverage point for trying to influence how, how well the future goes. And I guess, yeah, when I, when I imagine it more as electricity rather than as nuclear weapons, then it makes me feel a little bit more skeptical about like whether there's like much that we can do today to, to, to really like change what, what the long-term picture is or like, yeah, change, change how it pans out um so you you can imagine kind of an electricity and security like analysis group in like the late late 19th century trying to figure out how do we like deal with the security implications of electricity and trying to make that go better i guess um, maybe that would have been sensible but i guess it's not entirely obvious maybe maybe it's just like the illusion of being so far away makes it seem like well everyone's going to end up with electricity soon like this doesn't have big strategic implications but perhaps it did have you given any any thought to, to that issue
1: Not as much as I would have liked to. And again, maybe I should go away and read some books on the history of electricity and then then get back to you. I do expect that there could have been more thought put into uh, the kinds of technologies that electricity would enable and the implications that those would have. And that is something that we haven't begun doing at CSEP, but that I would be really interested to do in the future. You know, so far we've been focused on this kind of US-China competition angle, but it would be really interesting to think through beyond autonomous weapons. What types of changes might, might AI make and what would that imply? So yeah, in, in the electricity case, that might be if you have much more reliable, much faster communication between commanders and units in the field, like what does that imply? What, how does that change what you can do? I don't know how much that was thought through in advance and how much it might have been possible to think through more in advance, but it would be interesting to, to learn more about.
0: Yeah, I wonder, it'd it'd be really interesting to find out whether people thought that electricity had really important security implications and they're worried about kind of the country that gets electricity first and deploys it is going to like have a massive advantage and have a lot of influence over how the future goes. I mean, I guess it kind of makes sense. I suppose, I think, yeah, it was like, you know, rich countries at the time that probably electrified earlier on. And maybe that really did help them with like, you know, their their colonial ambitions and so on because they just became a lot richer.
1: Yeah, certainly. I think it it also makes it clear why it's a little strange to say like, oh, who's going to get AI first? You know, who's going to get electricity first? It's like, well, it seems more like, who's going to use it in what ways and who's going to be able to, to, to deploy it and, and actually have it be in widespread use in what ways.
0: I guess if you imagine kind of each different electrical appliance as kind of like an ML algorithm, then maybe it starts to make a little bit more sense because you can imagine you know, electronic weapons, which I guess like didn't really pan out, but you could have imagined that, yeah, like the military would use electricity perhaps more than, than we see them using it today. And, and then people could have worried about you know, how, how much better you could like make your weapons if you could electrify them.
1: Yeah, Perhaps.
0: So, yeah, if if that's the case, it seems like an AI is like electricity and it seems like the US government would kind of have to restructure just tons of things to take advantage of it. So it seems then kind of likely that actual application of AI within to to government and security purposes is probably going to lag far behind like what is technically possible just because it takes so long to like military procurement is kind of notoriously slow and expensive and it takes a long time for kind of old infrastructure to to be removed and, and replaced by new stuff. Uh, I think nuclear systems until recently were still using floppy disks that they totally stopped manufacturing. Which, which actually, I think <laughs> you're face palming, but that's, I think that's horrible. No, I'm actually sure, well. I'm not sure it is because it's kind of it had been proven to work. Like, do you really want to fiddle with something in, in nuclear systems? That yeah, I mean, I think there was a case for keeping it, which, which which they did point out. Anyway, the broader point is, yeah, um, government systems in general are replaced slowly. Sometimes, like mission critical military systems, replaced even slower. So yeah, is, is it possible that it will just like be a little bit disappointing in a sense, and like we, the government won't end up using AI nearly as much as you? As, as you might hope
1: yeah I think that's definitely possible um, and I do think that the the places where it will be implemented will be implemented sooner will be in those areas that are not mission critical and are not security critical you know things like all of the DoD is basically one huge back office so you know all of the logistical and HR and finance uh, systems there's plenty of you know commercial or there's an increasing number of commercial off the shelf you know products that you could buy that use some form of machine learning that uh, to, to streamline things like that, uh, and so I expect that we 'll see that before we see you know two drone swarms battling it out with no humans involved um, over the South China Sea or whatever it might
0: be. <laughs> Yeah, I suppose I wonder whether that can um, that, that 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 can kind of uh, tamp down on the arms race because if both the U.S. and China kind of expect that the other government is like not going to be a- actually able to apply like ML systems or like not take them up very quickly, then you don't have to worry about one side getting ahead uh, really quickly. Just because they both expect the other side, to, they're just going kind to of slow government bureaucracy. So yeah, you don't worry about one side you know uh, tooling up way faster than you can.
1: Yeah, I think I think that definitely uh, maybe tamps it down a little bit. I do think that. You know the the whole job of a, a military is to be to be paranoid and thinking ahead about what adversaries might be developing and so I think and there's also been a, a history of the us. underestimating how rapidly China would be able to develop various capabilities. so I think it's 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 natural to still be concerned and alarmed about what might be being developed behind closed doors and what they might be going to field with little warning.
0: Are there any obvious ways in which the kind of electricity to AI analogy breaks down any ways that AI is kind of obviously different than electricity was in the 19th century?
1: I think the biggest one that comes to mind is just the existence of this machine learning research community that is developing AI technologies and pushing them forward and finding new applications and finding new areas that they can work in and improving their performance. And the fact that that community is such a big part of how AI is likely to develop I don't believe there's an analogy for that in the electricity case. And in a lot of my thinking about policy, I think considering how that community is likely to react to policy changes is a really important consideration. And so I'm not sure that there's something similar in the electricity case.
0: I thought you might say that the, the disanalogy would be that electricity is kind of a rival good, a material good, that kind of two people can't use the same electricity but um, with with like AI as software, if you if you can come up with a really really good agro- algorithm, it can be scaled up and used by millions, like potentially very quickly.
1: Yeah, that's true as well. Definitely, I
0: guess it's another way that it could be like transformative, perhaps a bit more quickly, because you don't necessarily need to build up as much physical infrastructure.
1: Yeah, that that could be right.
0: People have also sometimes talked about data as kind of the new oil, which has always struck me as a, as a little bit daft because kind of oil is this rival risk good where it's like two people can't use the same barrel of oil, whereas like data is easily copied and kind of the algorithms that, that come out of training on a particular set of data can be like copied super easily. It's like completely different form of oil in a sense. Yeah. Do, do you kind of agree that's a misleading analogy?
1: I do. And I think it's for the reason that you said, but also for a couple of reasons, a big one being that oil is this kind of all purpose input to many different kinds of systems, whereas data in large part, is very specific to, or you know, what, what kind of data you need for a given machine learning application is pretty specific to what the machine learning application is for. And I think people, uh, people tend to neglect that when they use this analogy. So the most common way that I see this come up is people saying that, well, uh, I think Kai-Fu Lee uh, coined the phrase that if data is the new oil, then China is the Saudi Arabia of data. And this is coming from the idea that, well, China has this really large population and they don't have very good privacy control, so they can just kind of vacuum up all of this data from their citizens. And then they can, because data is an input to AI, therefore the output is like better AI. And like, this is some fundamental disadvantage for the US. And I kind of get where people are coming from with this, but it really seems like it is missing the step where you say, so what kind of data is who going to have access to and what are they going to use it to build? I would love to see more analysis of what kind of AI-enabled systems are likely to be most security-relevant, and I would bet that most of them are going to have very little to do with with consumer data, which is the kind of data that is this this argument is you know relevant to.
0: Yeah, I guess uh, the Chinese military will be in a fantastic position to suggest products for Chinese consumers to buy on whatever their equivalent of, of Amazon is using that data, but potentially it doesn't really help them on the battlefield.
1: Right, and you know if you look at things like satellite imagery or. Or, or drone imagery and how to process that and how to turn that into useful applications And the U.S. has a massive lead there. Uh, so that, that seems like much more relevant than any potential sort of advantage that China has.
0: Oil is like mostly the same as other oil, whereas the data is not the same as other data. It's kind of like saying PhD graduates the new oil. It's like, the thing is PhD, like PhD graduates in what? Are capable of doing what? They're all like very specific uh, to, to, to particular tasks. You can't just like sub in like 10 PhD graduates.
1: Yeah, and I mean, there are definitely complications that come from things like, you know, transfer learning is getting better and better, which is where you train an algorithm on, on one data set and then you use it on a, a different problem um, or you sort of retrain it on a, a smaller version of a different data set. And things like, you know, language understanding, like maybe having access to the chat logs of huge numbers of consumers has some use in in sort of understanding, in, in certain types of language understanding. So I don't know, I don't think it's a simple story, but I guess that's the point. I, I think the story people are telling is, is too simple.
0: So let, let's push back on that for a second. Let, let's say that we get kind of some kind of phase shift here where it's kind of, you know, we're no longer just programming machine learning systems to to perform one specific task on on that kind of data. But instead, we we do kind of find a way to to develop machine learning systems that are good at general reasoning. Yeah, they learn language and they learn general reasoning principles. And now it seems like these machine learning algorithms can like perform many more functions. Eventually, go into like novel areas and and, and learn to, to to act in them in the same way that humans do. Is is that something that that you consider at all? Is that a, a vision that people in DC uh, you know think about, or that people at CSET think about it at at this point?
1: Not something that I consider in my day job. No. <laughs> <laughs> Definitely something that's interesting to to read about on the weekends. Yeah. I think in DC there's a healthy skepticism to that idea, and certainly given that CSET is focused on producing work that is going to be relevant and useful to decisions that are coming up in the near term, it's not really something that's in our wheelhouse.
0: So something I saw uh, you were arguing about in, in your testimony is that the kind of AI talent competition, in as much as there is one, is it's, it's kind of the, the US is to lose. I guess a lot of people imagine that kind of over time, China is going to just probably overtake the United States in in AI research um, in the same way that it kind of is overtaking the US economy just through like force of population. But yeah, I guess you, you think that's wrong?
1: Yeah, I do. And I, I think it's because it's really easy to underestimate the extent to which the U.S. is just a massive hub for global talent. When I was in China, I had two friends who were machine learning students at Tsinghua University, a very prestigious Chinese university, and I was asking them about you know, where they were hoping to get their internships over the summer, and it was just so obvious for both of them that the U.S. companies were by far the best place to get an internship and therefore would be super competitive and therefore they probably wouldn't get it and so they'd have to go to a different a different place. And I think it's really easy to overlook that from you know, within the US, how desirable it is to come here. And I included in my testimony at the at the end, a figure that came from a, a, a paper looking at global talent flows. And the figure relates to uh, inventors, so holders of patents, which is not exactly the same as AI researchers, obviously. But I included it because it's just really visually striking. Basically, it's looking at different countries and their sort of net position in terms of how many inventors, where an inventor is a, a patent holder, I think, um, how many inventors they import versus export. And First off, China is a massive net exporter, so they, they're they losing something, or roughly, I'm just eyeballing this chart, around 50,000 people a, a year are sort of being net uh, net leaving China. And then all these other countries, you know, they're sort of around that same range and the sort of thousands or, um, or maybe tens of thousands, and most of them are, are sort of either exporting or they're very, very slightly importing. And then you just have this massive spike at the far right of the chart for the United States, where its net, you know, net importer position is around 190,000 people, which is just sort of way off the scale of what all these other countries are doing. And I haven't seen a chart like that for AI researchers or for, you know, computer science PhDs, but I would guess that it would be pretty similarly shaped. And I think China is going to gradually do a better job of retaining some of its own top talent at home. But I really can't see it uh, short of massive political change, really can't see it becoming such a hub for people from other countries. And certainly if you think about the prospect of the US losing 50,000 really talented people to go live in China because they think it's a better place to live, I just think that's, you know, completely ludicrous. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> really. And again, this this comes back to the point of the uh, United States leaning into the advantages that we we do have and those really do include political freedom freedom of expression and association, and even just having clean air and, and good infrastructure, then maybe that, that last point, the good infrastructure is one where China can compete. Yeah. But everything else, I, th- I think the US is in a really strong position if it if it will just maintain that.
0: Yeah, I think I, uh, I've heard Tyler Cohen make the argument that it's, it's clear that DC isn't isn't taking AI that seriously, because they've done absolutely nothing about immigration uh, law to do with AI. There's no particular program for AI researchers to, to come into the United States, which you'd think that there would be if you were really worried about like yeah your, your competitive situation and losing technology technological superiority uh, on, on, on that technology. If, if you think that the US government should do anything about AI, do you think it's just like change immigration laws so that AI scientists can can come to America is, is, is the, the no brainer?
1: Yeah, I definitely think that's the no brainer if you ignore political considerations. And the problem is that immigration is just this hugely political issue here. And uh, there's so much deadlock on all sides. And if you if you try to make some small, obvious seeming change, then people will want it to become part of a larger deal. And You know, one one person I heard who who worked a lot on immigration policy said that you know if you try to put any kind of immigration legislation through Congress whatsoever, it's just going to snowball and become comprehensive immigration reform, which is then this you know huge headache that no one wants to deal with. So I do think it's the the obvious low hanging fruit aside from political considerations, but the political considerations are really important. So we are looking into in our our project on this, looking into changes that don't need legislation that can just go through agencies or, or be done through executive action in the hope that those could be actually achieved. I don't know. I think I think Tyler Cowen's quote is like cute, um, but not necessarily reflecting the way that you know government actually works.
0: Yeah, you uh, said in your testimony that you thought it'd be pretty dangerous to try to like close up the openness of the current AI ecosystem. How could that backfire on the US?
1: The thing I'm most concerned about would be if the US government is taking actions in that direction that don't have a lot of buy-in from the research community. I think the AI research community cares a lot about its, the ability to publish their work openly, to share it, to critique it. There was you know, a really interesting release recently from OpenAI where they put out this language model, GPT-2, which could kind of generate convincing pieces of text. And they deliberately, when they released this, said that they were going to only release a much smaller version of the model and not put out the full version of the model because of concerns of that it might be misused. And the reaction to this within the research community was was pretty outraged, uh, which was really interesting given that they were sort of explicitly, they were explaining what they were doing, they were saying that it was explicitly for sort of reasons of public benefit, basically, and still get, they got all this blowback. And so I think if the US government took actions to restrict publishing in a similar way, it would be much more likely to do that in a way that would be seen even as even worse by the, the AI research community. And, and I do think that would prompt at least some uh, significant a number of researchers to choose a different place to work, not to mention also slowing down the U.S.'s ability to innovate in the space, because there obviously are a lot of like great symbiotic effects you get when researchers can read each other's work openly, when they're using similar platforms to develop on, uh, when they're sort of shared benchmarks to work from.
0: So yeah, I guess an attempt like that to try to stay ahead of everyone else could end up with you falling behind because like people just jump ship and leave and want, yeah, want to go do research elsewhere. And then also your research community becomes kind of sclerotic and like unable to communicate.
1: Right. And so I do think there's, there's uh, plenty of room for and, and maybe a need for a conversation about when openness and complete openness is not the right norm for AI research. And I really applaud OpenAI for beginning to prompt that conversation. But I think uh, it's very unlikely that the government should be kind of leading that.
0: So let's just be a little bit more pessimistic here about like the the odds of uh, CSET having a having a positive impact for a second. What reason is there to think that the U.S. government is like realistically going to be able to coordinate itself to take like predictably beneficial actions here? Could it could it be that it's just better for the government to kind of stay out of this stay out of this area and like companies that kind of don't like aren't so threatening to other countries just yeah lead the way in this technology?
1: Yeah, I think I would not describe the effect we're trying to have as trying to get some kind of coordinated government, whole of government response that is sort of very proactive and very large. Instead, I would think that there are going to be government responses to many aspects of this technology, some of which may be sort of application specific, you know, regulation around self-driving cars or what have you, and some of which may be more general. So there's definitely been a lot of talk about potential restrictions on students or restrictions on, on, on companies and whether they're able to work with U.S. partners so I think there are going to be actions taken by different parts of the government, and we would hope that our work can help shape those actions to be more productive and more likely to have, have the effects that they're intended to have and, and better based on a real grounding in the technology, as opposed to trying to carry out some grand AI strategy, which I think I agree would be kind of dicey if you could you know, get the strategy to be executed and certainly extremely difficult to get to the point where any coordinated strategy is, is being carried out.
0: At 80,000 hours, we're pretty excited for people to go into AI policy and strategy and do the kind of thing that, that you're doing. But I guess the, the biggest kind of pushback I get is from people who are yeah, skeptical that it's possible to reliably inform kind of policy in, in, in such, a, such a complicated topic in a way that has any reliable effect. And can, Even if you can understand the, the proximate effects of, of the actions and the things that you say, the effects further down the line, the, the kind of further down the chain of causation, um, are so hard to understand, and kind of the, the, the government system that you're a part of is so chaotic and full of unintended consequences. But it seems like even someone who's very smart and kind of understands the system as well as anyone can, uh, is still going to be at a bit, bit of a loss to figure out what they should say that's going to help rather than hurt. Do you think there's m- much of this critique of AI and kind of other difficult policy work?
1: I think it's a good critique in explaining why it doesn't make sense to come up with grand plans that have many different steps and involve many different actors and, you know, solve everything through some like very specific plan of action. But I also think that kind of the reality of how much, how so much of policy works is that there are people who are. Overworked, who don't have time to learn about all the different areas that they are working on, who have lots of different things they're thinking about. Maybe they're thinking about you know, their career, maybe they're thinking about their family, maybe they're, you know, hoping to, to do a different job in the future. That I do think there's a lot of room for people who care about producing kind of good outcomes in the world and who are able to skill up on the technical side and then also operate effectively in a policy environment. I just think there's a lot of low-hanging fruit to slightly tweak how things go, which is not going to be yeah, not going to be some long-term plan that is very detailed, but it's just going to be having a slightly different set of considerations in mind. An example of this, this is kind of a a grandiose example, but in the Robert Caro biography of, of LBJ, there's a section where he talks about the Cuban missile crisis, and he describes Bobby Kennedy having a significant influence over how the decision making went there simply because he was thinking about the effects on civilians more than he felt like the other people in the room were and that sort of that slight change in perspective meant that his whole approach to the problem was was quite different i think that's like a pretty once in a lifetime once in many lifetimes experience um, but i think the the basic principle is 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 the same
0: i guess it's a case that yeah working with government kind of you get this Huge potential leverage from kind of the power and the resources that the government has access to, and then then on on the flip side, you take this hit that it's like a, potentially a lot harder to figure out exactly what you should say, and um, and there's a good chance that the actions that you take like won't have the effect that that was desired, and you kind of just got to, got to trade off these different pros and cons of yeah using that particular approach to try to do good.
1: Yeah, and I definitely think that there there's a a difficult thing of when you're when you're deciding how you want to shape your career, it's difficult to choose a career where you will predictably end up in some situation where you can have a lot of leverage over some important thing. And so it, it's more likely that you'll be able to find something where you can either be making slight changes often, or where there's some chance that some important situation will come up and you'll have a chance to play a role in it. But then the problem is, if you go with the, you know, the there's a chance that a big situation will come up and you'll, and you'll get to play a role in it, there's a much greater chance that it won't. And then you'll spend most of your career sort of doing much less important stuff. Um, and I think there's like a difficult set of prioritization and motivation questions involved in, is that the kind of career that, that you want to have and, and how to feel about the fact that looking back, probably most likely you'll feel like you didn't accomplish that much, but maybe ex ante, there was a chance that, that you would be able to, to be part of an important time.
0: So all the way back in uh, February 2017, there there was this uh, two-day workshop uh, in in Oxford that led to this report, uh, which we've talked about on the show a few times before, called The Malicious Use of uh, Artificial Intelligence, uh, which had fully uh, 26 authors from uh, 14 different institutions kind of writing this, uh, I guess, consensus uh, view on on what concerns you all had about how I might might be misused in future. Yeah, you were one of many authors of this report. Two years after it's written, uh, how do you think it holds up and what might you say that was different today than, than, than what was written then?
1: I think it holds up reasonably well. The the workshop was held in February 2017, and then the report was published in February 2018, building on the workshop. And something that was amusing at that time was that we had mentioned in the report the possibility that machine learning would be used to generate fake video, essentially. I believe in in the workshop we talked about it being used for political purposes. And then in the meantime, between the the workshop and the report, there were actually the first instances of deep fakes being used in pornography. And so that was interesting to see that, we'd kind of got close to the mark, but not necessarily hit the mark on, on how it might be used. I think the biggest thing, if we were doing it again today, the biggest question in my mind is how we should think about uses of AI by states that to me certainly, and to many Western observers look Extremely unethical. I remember at the time that we held the the workshop, there was some discussion of should we be talking about AI that is used that has kind of bad consequences, or should we be talking about AI that is used in ways that are illegal, or, or what exactly should it be? And we ended up with this framing of malicious use, which I think excludes things like surveillance, for example. And for me, a really big development over the past couple of years has been seeing how the Chinese government has been using AI. Really, I mean, only as one small part, but certainly as one part of a a sort of larger surveillance regime, especially in Xinjiang with Muslim Uyghurs who are being imprisoned there. And I think if we held the workshop again today, it would be really hard. At the time, our motivation was thinking, well, it would be nice to make this a report that can be sort of global and, and shared and, and that basically everyone can get behind, you know, that there's clearly good guys and bad guys. And we're really just talking about the really bad guys here. And I think today it would be much harder to cleanly slice things in that way and to exclude this use of of AI from uh, sort of this categorization of kind of deliberately using AI for for a bad ends, which is sort of what we were going for.
0: Yeah. So one thing that troubled me a lot from my interview with uh, Alan Defoe was the relationship between AI and kind of authoritarian states and perhaps their improved capacity to, to track people uh, and you know, analyze the, 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 their moods and, and, and their beliefs and um, basically make it very hard for people to, to engage in organized dissent and potentially uh, you know, change their country for the, for the better. I heard you on Julia Galoff's podcast say that you're, you think uh, people's fears about kind of the Chinese social credit system is, is somewhat overblown. And that's something that, uh, that, that we talked about and, 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 and we're a bit worried about um, in, in that interview. Um, maybe do you, do you want to explain why uh, you think yeah the Chinese credit system isn't, isn't perhaps everything that, that people have made it out to be? Uh, and also just comment on like, whether people should be worried about um, yeah, implications of uh, ML and uh, you know, big, big data and, uh, uh, and authoritarian states.
1: Yeah. So the social credit question is really interesting. I worry a little bit that when I say that the Western coverage of social credit has been overblown, that people hear from that, oh, actually, there's nothing to be worried about here. I do think that the Chinese government has plenty of quite concerning plans about what they would like to do with social credit, but they are very much in the prototype stage. And and I think more importantly, I think another thing that that I find irritating is that people want to talk about this social credit system as if it's kind of the be all and end all of Chinese state control, but it seems to be actually a relatively small part. And in fact, the, the widespread surveillance, the introduction of these camps in Xinjiang, uh, things like that are there's sort of a, it's part of a much larger infrastructure and apparatus that I think is extremely concerning. Also, you know certainly also the the Great Firewall and the censorship within chat apps. For example, you know if you if you post something in in WeChat that has been censored, it might just be deleted without you know noticing, or you send a message to a friend and it just doesn't get sent. So I don't know. I, I guess the short story is that I do think this is really concerning. I think it's likely to continue. On the other hand, I also think that I'm not convinced yet of how much of a threat it poses to U.S. security. So in the circles that I move in, there's a lot of concern that this sort of Chinese authoritarianism and population control and also their access to, you know, the fact that Chinese companies are selling systems abroad has some, you know, really concerning geopolitical implications for the U.S. And honestly, I haven't heard a kind of fully fleshed out version of that argument that I've found very compelling. So I guess where I end up landing is thinking that this is really, really concerning for the populations that it affects and something that I find really troubling, while also thinking that I'm not sure that from a security perspective, the US needs to be especially concerned about it. And so perhaps we should be responding to it in a, you know, from a different perspective, from a human rights perspective or something like that.
0: Couldn't you worry that if this technology becomes really easy to operate, then like the temptation for the U.S. to use it on its own population could become too great, or, or it could end up being like misused in, in more like subtle subtle ways? It's, it's not gonna you know, U.S. isn't gonna turn into China overnight, but it, like there might be some technologies of population control that would just r- kind of rather didn't exist.
1: Yeah, I think that's definitely something to be concerned about. That that I think is not usually what people in D.C. are, are talking about if they're concerned about the spread of authoritarianism. Um, but yeah, I definitely think that that is concerning, and I think. There are interesting discussions to be had on, you know, for example, San Francisco recently putting a moratorium on facial recognition and just saying this is a a technology that is not mature enough to be used in these kind of law enforcement contexts is a really interesting step, I think. And it would be good to see more consideration of how we should be thinking through the deployment of technologies like this that obviously, you know, can have some, some safety and security benefits. I felt super safe in China. There's just like very little petty crime. And, and thinking through how to trade that off against the political freedom, privacy, all of those considerations.
0: Yeah, let's let's dive into talking about uh, CSET for a little bit. I mean, lots of people have ideas for you know research institutes that, that could be set up. How is it that that CSET actually actually managed to get off the ground?
1: Yeah, I think it was a, a confluence of a few different factors. I think most important was this kind of demand within DC for more information about AI better understanding of AI and a better understanding of, of what implications it has and what implications it doesn't have. Um, because uh, a lot of people working in DC, especially working in government roles, have so many different topics that they need to be able to understand and react to. And so when some new topic comes up that especially one that is highly technical, like AI, it's very hard for them to quickly get spun up on, on what they should be doing about it and, and how they should be thinking about it. And very hard for them to tell the difference between good ideas and good analysis and, and sort of bad ideas or, or oversimplified cliches. So one piece of why CSET got set up was this kind of demand for information that we saw in in what we thought was an important space. Another piece that was really important was that Jason Matheny, who's now the executive director of CSET, was able to come in and and lead it. And so he has experience as director of IARPA, which is uh, basically an organization that funds uh, the development of new technologies for the intelligence community in in the U.S. government and uh, is really knowledgeable about about AI and about broader technology issues generally, and, and as well as having this, this network and this understanding of how D.C. worked. And so I think that was an important piece. And then certainly a third important piece was the fact that we were able to find Georgetown as an institutional home that was both, you know, has this really great cachet in D.C. as being a great place in D.C. to do work on security and having lots of different experts there with expertise on on all different areas relating to national security more generally, and also having the connections to, to decision makers. And so Georgetown, the fact that Georgetown was willing to host us and that the dean of the School of Foreign Service was really excited about making CSET work made it much, much easier for us to get started and for us to sort of get off the ground running because we were hosted within this organization, within this university that, that people know and that people respect.
0: What exactly is, is kind of the, the gap that, that CSET fills that, that was previously vacant? I guess, is it like AI research specifically, or maybe like yeah, technical understanding of technologies that's kind of lacking in DC? Or, or is it just that um, not many people are looking into emerging technologies and what security implications they have uh, just across the board?
1: Yeah, so it's looking at how the national security establishment in D.C. should be and shouldn't be responding to developments in technologies like AI. So as these kind of changes begin to happen in the external world policymakers obviously want to think should we be doing something about this should we be funding something should we be regulating something should we be you know procuring something for our military and there's so many options and it can be really difficult to know which ones to take so the gap that we wanted to to fill was looking at yeah what that group of people, policymakers and decision makers uh, should be doing based on AI, which obviously takes an understanding both of the technology and of, of what is already happening and what is um, likely to happen in the future, as well as understanding the yeah the, the national security side of it. So you know, how does the military work? How does the intelligence community work? What are they trying to do? How are they trying to do it? What kinds of changes are feasible or not feasible?
0: So for people who aren't already convinced, what's the case that emerging technology and security is just a really important issue that more people should be thinking about?
1: I think looking at historical analogies is is maybe a helpful way to go here, where if you look back at how, I don't know, we now call it security studies in the past, you know, King's College still calls it war studies, for example, but how war has changed over time and how the relationships between, between states have changed over time, it's just really clear that the development of new technologies has a huge effect on that. So if you think back to you know, the difference between fighting with bows and arrows on horseback compared to having even just having access to really simple guns, that was just a huge difference and totally changed how you should, not just how you should fight on a single battlefield, but also how you should structure your forces, how you should plan, how you should provision them, all of that kind of thing. And so when you start looking at more recent technologies that have been developed, things like aircraft or obviously nuclear weapons, similarly, there's just these huge knock-on effects for how countries relate to each other and how they would relate to each other on the battlefield and how that affects whether they want to come to a a conflict situation, not to mention more recently, you know, with developments in, in cybersecurity and other technologies, the way that that has created an entire sort of new field of you know, ways that hostile or semi-hostile states can relate to each other that's off the battlefield, but still in this kind of slightly adversarial setting. And it really changes the, I don't know, just everything about how those, how countries relate to each other, how they make decisions, what they think is acceptable and unacceptable, what they don't want to do because they feel deterred by some potential future action. And uh, uh, I think navigating transitions like that gracefully can reduce the chances of unintended conflict One example that I I find compelling, though I I haven't dug into the historical record of whether it's correct or not, is this idea that World War I was partially a result of changes in force structure and and transportation, even trains. The fact that once one army began boarding the trains and and getting closer to the front, that the other countries um, involved had to begin also getting into that process and sort of started this mobilization into war that was really hard to, to pull back from. Again, I'm, I'm not 100% sure that that is an accurate causal story, but it certainly makes sense. Um, it could have been. <laughs> it could have been. Um, and I think we could see similar, um, similar things now, even things like you know, what is the appropriate way to, re- to retaliate to, to cyber attacks and how, to, how does that apply to cyber attacks on corporations versus cyber attacks on you know, public assets um, is a sort of uh, a, a more modern example.
0: Yeah, okay. So I guess changes in technology change the balance of power between countries potentially and also change the the dynamic of like threats that they might pose to one another. I guess like the, the most famous one is like mutually assured destruction. So right. nuclear weapons set up this thing where it's like yeah, we, we had to figure out what kind of stable arrangement can you have with those. Um, with this new technology that was able with intercontinental ballistic missiles, they can attack like within just like 10 minutes. Uh, so you have to like rearrange everything so that you don't end up going to war with that. Uh, whereas previously, obviously, it would have taken much, much longer. So
1: Right, maybe another example is the advent of machine guns and the way that they were used in World War One, where it seems possible that if military leaders had realized in advance how trench warfare was going to look, it seems possible that a lot of horrific human suffering could have been avoided in those trenches because there just wasn't there wasn't sort of a theoretical understanding or a, a way of thinking about military strategy that took into account the way that machine guns could just mince people up over and over again.
0: Yeah, that might have been good to know ahead of time. Right. <laughs> So it sounds like you're mostly focused on state actors, uh, but do, are you also interested in like, how technology can enable terrorist groups or yeah, non-state actors?
1: Yeah, definitely interested in it. So we hope that our research is going to be useful and it's going to be um, policy relevant and relevant to decisions that our key audiences are, are having to make. And so it's it's a lot of the topics we choose to work on are driven by what we're hearing in conversations with those those people. And so right now, a lot of that is focused on how AI relates to US-China competition. And so that's a lot of the, the work that we've begun doing. Certainly non-state actors come up. Uh, I think it's an important topic. It's one that I've I've thought about a little less.
0: Do you have any examples of kind of successes in technology and security studies in the past that that you can look to as exemplars of of how you might be able to help going forward?
1: Yeah, the go-to example would be RAND in the early Cold War era, thinking through the, the strategic implications of how nuclear weapons worked and what that implied for deterrence and eventually, as you mentioned, coming up with mutually assured destruction as a stable deterrence regime.
0: You have decided to focus basically exclusively on AI for, for the first couple of years. Were there any other technologies that were kind of in, in the running as potential, potential focus areas at first?
1: Yeah, definitely. Our motivation here was thinking about which of these technologies is there real demand to hear more about? And also, which of these technologies do we think are actually likely to have big effects in the next few years? So we certainly considered working on biotechnology, synthetic biology, uh, that kind of work. There, essentially, we, we think that the Center for Health Security at Johns Hopkins is just doing really excellent work, and we, we didn't want to be uh, kind of stepping on their toes. And, and so for the sake of that, and also for the sake of focusing on, on one technology, we did decide to stick with AI for now. Others that come up include quantum computing comes up a lot as a potential area that we might focus on in the future. Hypersonic weapons are an area of huge interest to the, the, US, the sort of the U.S. military, Essentially, the way that we want this to work is that our work is shaped, again, by what is needed and what is necessary and what is useful right now. So it may well be that in two years, we look around and we my guess would be that AI continues to be really relevant and continues to change the game in new ways. And so in that case, we would continue working on it. But we wanted to you know leave open the possibility that uh, AI and, and machine learning do a, a bit of a blockchain and kind of fall off the relevance radar. Um, in which case, we would be able to move on to some other technology that we, that we thought was more useful, or if AI continues to be relevant and something else seems like it's being under explored, then we could obviously, you know, spin up new and additional programs.
0: Yeah. Did you hear that, listeners? Block blockchain no longer relevant. <laughs> <laughs> sure. There's like seven furious listeners right now. Uh, yeah. So, what is CSET's uh, model or like theory for, for how it can have an impact? Is it kind of talking to policymakers or you know publishing articles? Uh, what's the vision?
1: Yeah. It's a mix, uh, I guess. Uh, the bulk of our work is going to be kind of proactive, longer-term research projects that we choose and work on over the course of several months, you know, several months each. Those topics are, as I mentioned, informed by what we're hearing uh, would be interesting to policymakers, but then that's sort of us thinking about uh, what framing we want to use, what exact version of the question we think is going to be most useful. And those will usually, we think, everything that I say about CSET is, you know, subject to the, the caveat that we've existed for six months, so who knows what we'll look like six months from now. Um, but, we, you know, our plan would be, that most of those research projects would end up with uh, a longer report accompanied by some shorter and more accessible version, for example, an op-ed or something like that. And then those outputs can also be used to go and talk to various people in government who are interested in hearing about the, you know, the results that we've come up with. Having a new, newly published report is always a good you know, excuse to get in touch with people and a good excuse for them to, to bring you in. And as as well as that kind of more proactive longer term work, we'll also do some sort of shorter term, more more reactive things. We've already done a little bit of this. So that's looking into kind of more specific questions that some specific agency or or office is interested in knowing the answer to and uh, trying to give them a sort of fast turnaround answer on that.
0: This is a slightly hard question to, to figure out exactly what I'm asking, but how much of the impact do you think will come from doing like really complicated analysis and having great insights versus just having your head screwed on and knowing something about this topic and preventing people's like fantasies from getting away from them? And like, you know, people hear about like security threats. And then I think there's a risk that people in government can like lose their heads and, and, and do really silly things. And just talking to someone who actually knows about the area can, you know, bring us back to back to planet Earth. Uh, do, do you think that just being like experts who are not going to lose their heads is a, is is a big win?
1: I'm not sure I would put it like that. I think I would say instead that I don't expect most of the value that we add to be through like deep thinking that comes up with these brilliant new ideas that no one has ever thought of before. But I do think having the time and space to look into an issue and to try and figure out uh, what the status quo is and what potential other options are. So for example, one of our big projects that we've got going right now is responding to a topic that lots of people wanted to know about, which was You know, AI expertise is such an important input to AI progress. And how is the U.S. doing on that? How is China doing on that? How could we do better? You know, how does that all work? And so just having the time to look into what are the statistics on on where students and researchers are and how do they actually move between countries and how does that seem to be affected by immigration policy? for example. And then if you want to dig in to the immigration policy angle, which one of our fellows is doing, what are actual specific, very specific changes to the US regulatory environment or the, the specific application processes, not just the specific visas available to people, but what conditions those visas are available under, what paths there are between student status and permanent resident status, things like that. Us having the time and space to think through those very concrete options and making it as easy as possible for policymakers to then go in and say, oh, yeah, great, I want to do like these three things that they put in their white paper, I think is actually a really underappreciated value add. Because again, so many of the people that have the decision making power in these roles just have no time to think through different options and to, to come up with actually specific plans.
0: So you've only been around four, six months. Do you have any messages for policymakers at this point? Or is it just kind of too early and you don't want to jump jump the gun before you've actually thought things through?
1: We definitely have some early recommendations and early conclusions. More sort of fleshed out versions of them will be coming out in, in the, the reports that we'll begin to publish over the next couple of months. One set of recommendations is definitely around this human capital question. So, how can the US better attract and retain top AI talent? And there are just specific recommendations that will be coming out in in, in an immigration policy report about tweaks to the H-1B process, tweaks to the green card process, changes to how the organizations that are running these screening and application processes allocate their funding, things like that. Another set of recommendations that we've put out was uh, as a, a comment on the request for information put out by NIST, the National Institute for Standards and Technology, I believe, asking for input on AI standards. And so there we were uh, recommending that NIST try to develop a, a national AI testbed where different AI products and applications can be, can be tested and evaluated, and also that NIST Try to do the difficult work of establishing technical standards for safety and reliability of AI systems, because having standards like that, I think, could dramatically improve our ability to deploy AI systems in important settings and know how to think about whether those systems are Reliably going to do what we want them to do, and I think the, the the really tough thing there is going to be developing these technical standards. And and once some organization is able to do that, I would expect many different institutions around the world to then pick up on those technical standards. So that was a set of recommendations we had for NIST.
0: It seems like kind of other groups that might take this on, kind of in academia or or think tanks or in the government, mostly haven't you know allocated a lot of resources to to thinking big picture about the, the implications of AI. Um, why do you think that is?
1: I think there's a few reasons. One reason is that, again, resources are tight. Time is tight. It's hard to allocate resources to a brand new thing. Another reason is there's a real lack of people who can understand both the technical and policy sides of this space. And due to that, I mean, one of CSET's main goals, so we have essentially two primary goals, one of which is to produce research and recommendations on these topics and hopefully influence policy decisions or, or the discourse directly. And the second main goal is to be training up the next generation of people who can think through these problems and and take on government roles. Because, uh, yeah, there there is a real lack of people who have sufficient familiarity with machine learning and with the details of the technology and how it works, who then can actually also turn around and go and talk to your undersecretary of defense and talk that person's language and understand the concerns that they're facing day to day and be able to talk in detail about topics that that are going to be useful to them. So I think... Uh, We really hope that a few years from now, CSET kind of played a role in making sure that there is a a much larger uh, set of people who are able to sort of traverse both of those worlds.
0: Looking at your staff page, the people we've managed to hire in the last six months, it seems like you've invested really heavily in kind of in data scientists and people who know a lot about data science. What's what's the plan there, having having such technical people?
1: Yeah, so basically, our research staff is divided into two teams. One team is our analysis team, which is our research fellows, research, research analysts who are leading and executing these research projects that I've talked about a little bit. And then the other team is the data science team, and their role is essentially to be gaining access to data that the analysis team can use to, to do that research. And so the, the the hypothesis here is essentially that there are huge amounts of data available on AI research, for example, openly published papers on AI investment, on specific people, so job postings and resumes that are available openly. And honestly, the, the hypothesis is that there is a lot of insight to be gained here that other actors may not look at, and that specifically, the intelligence community has perhaps uh, overlooked because they are openly available. And so we're hoping that by having access to all of that data and being able to combine it in intelligent ways, we'll be able to notice trends and, and find insights that others may miss.
0: Is it also going to be the case that these people with data science backgrounds like, have a better understanding of ML from a technical point of view and like what, what are sensible things to say about it and what what things are like technically uninformed?
1: Yeah, partially, though we are also hiring for a machine learning and AI fellow. So our data scientists certainly have a better understanding of, of machine learning than, than many of our analysis team staff, just because they are coming from a more technical background. But we we would love to hire someone full-time who is really kind of deep in, in the foundations of machine learning research, um, who can advise us on that. And we do have several non-resident fellows who are, uh, so we have two who are working at top AI labs, and so we also consult with them about whether what we're saying makes sense if we're making any silly mistakes.
0: So I'm familiar with a lot of organizations that have started up, but I think none that uh, came onto the scene with like such prestigious uh, affiliations, organizational affiliations and like people with a, with a lot of experience and kind of impressive credentials. Um, has that made it a lot easier to kind of fundraise and, and hire for the organization and allow you to like grow much more quickly than, than if you are kind of fresh off the boat?
1: Uh, I think so. Yeah. Uh, and we've been really, really fortunate in that. It's been great that everyone has been so excited to see a new organization in this space and that people have been up for taking a risk on us because it's certainly always a a bit of a thrill ride joining a new organization while we're still figuring out what we're doing. And so it's been really good and and really nice to have kind of the the stability and the credibility that comes from, for example, being based at Georgetown that make people feel like, oh yeah, this is an organization that maybe things are a little bit wild right now, but they're working on it and it's going to settle down and and turn into something great.
0: What made you decide that this was kind of your best opportunity to, to have an impact personally? And were there any like other opportunities that you were considering that you that kind of almost took instead?
1: I think this was pretty obviously the right thing for me to do once the option came up. So I had I had been interested for a few years in this intersection of AI and national security specifically. So within, you know, people sometimes talk about AI policy more broadly, and I always found that the national security angle seemed to me like one that was really important and, and relatively concrete and tractable as well. So I knew that I wanted to work in that space. I had been working at the Open Philanthropy Project and doing some work on that. And I decided to take a break and and go spend some time in China. And while I was in China, kind of just in, you know, learn and explore mode, hearing that this opportunity came up to work in DC to work with exactly the communities that I wanted to be learning about and and helping uh, and working with Jason and working at Georgetown. It was just such a such an obvious choice.
0: What have you learned about how to get people to take you seriously in in, in d c not not having been there until recently?
1: Well one thing is get older. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> it's been fun moving from the Bay Area where I feel like everyone really wants to be the you know the child prodigy, the twenty one year old billionaire startup founder, uh, and instead moving to to a city where I feel like, oh yeah, every year I age is is actually good for my career. This is mm-hmm. great. I think you know it's nothing other than that there's there's no magic to it, knowing what you're talking about, thinking about what the person you're talking with is interested in and and what they're looking for and trying to help them achieve that. Certainly, you know, having a relatively firm technical understanding of of AI and and being able to give grounded explanations of uh, why you have the opinions you do and, and why maybe some things you're hearing from other people aren't as valid. Yeah, I think it's all, you know, relatively straightforward, stuff like that.
0: Speaking of age, I read an article recently pointing out that I think the, the Democratic leadership team is like seventy-eight years old, seventy-nine years old, and seventy-nine years old. Which I think collectively made them older than the U.S. Constitution. Is is that just politicians, or is it uh, are like you know people in the in national security scene, or people in, in um, the civil service, like also like often working like past normal retirement age?
1: I think that's probably mostly mostly that specific group in. The government, more generally, I think people are, you know, usually having pretty, pretty regular careers.
0: So you're an Australian like me, and I guess you've lived most of your life in Australia. Um, has that been um, an, an impediment to kind of integrating yourself into the into the U.S. policy world?
1: So far, not really. But I, again, I've been in you know D.C. for six months. So <laughs> Ask me again in ten years, I guess. Yeah. Certainly, uh, working in security, there is much more suspicion of foreign nationals. I'm very fortunate to be Australian, which I think is possibly the Least suspicious country from a US perspective. Maybe New Zealand squeaks in with being even less suspicious. I don't think
0: you're a sneaky Australian, like plotting an invasion of the American mainland.
1: Well, (laughs) I don't know when the last time was that Australia did something the US didn't approve of. I think it was probably a long time ago. Yeah. So, no, I mean, I'm definitely unsure how it's going to go. I'm in the process of applying for a green card. I hope to be naturalized in the future. I, I think. Probably the fact that I spent a significant amount of time in China is likely to be more of a hurdle to, for example, a future security clearance application. But I would guess that that compounded with, you know, originally being a foreign national probably doesn't help. So I don't know. I Apparently the deputy chief of staff in the White House is a New Zealander with a strong accent, oh, which wow. I take as a, a sign of encouragement.
0: Yeah. Do you have to wait until you get your green card or until you're a citizen before you can apply for a security clearance?
1: Yes. Uh, there are some clearances that are open to people from the Five Eyes countries. So that's an intelligence alliance between the US, UK, Canada, New Zealand, Australia. But uh, the types of clearances that, that would be relevant to me, I would need to be a, a US citizen.
0: Is this a very competitive space? Because uh, people are like, you know, AI is kind of a hot issue. Or is it the case that maybe because it's a new area, it's it's like relatively easy to, to, to break into it because it's not, you don't have a lot of like incumbents that so you have to edge out?
1: I think in one sense, it's hard to Break into if break into means getting a job specifically in this space because there aren't that many jobs uh, specifically working on AI and security. But I think it's easy to break into in the sense that there are very few people who are really skilled up on both sides of it. And, and I would expect that in the future the number of specific jobs on this are, are only going to increase. So I think if you're interested in it, my advice would be to learn the basics of machine learning. You know, do a do a Coursera course on on the technical details of machine learning, and then try and you know, marinate in the national security world. So come to understand how how that world thinks, what kinds of issues are on their mind, learn about the relevant history, the relevant policy today, maybe learn, you know, maybe you want to specialize in an, an area that's adjacent to AI, like cybersecurity, where there are more existing kind of positions and, and, and more of an established field. And then I think if you if you can show that you are thoughtful on, on AI and uh, as well as having that really strong security background, then I think you'll easily be able to You'll be a really strong candidate when when new roles do open up.
0: Uh, Let's talk for a couple of minutes about uh, career options in this area. But before we move on to talking about uh, China at a greater length, what kinds of people is CSET looking to hire over the next couple of years? And and maybe do do you have any vacancies uh, at, at the moment or coming up in the next few months?
1: Yeah, so the biggest vacancy we have and we expect to continue having is for research fellows. So these are people who are relatively early career, they have a graduate degree, they have a couple of years of research experience, and they come to us to work on basically leading research projects. So they work with our leadership team to develop a project idea, and they then execute on that over a few months, and then they kind of start again and and start a new project. Good candidates for that role will span both the technical and the policy side of things. So we love getting people from security studies backgrounds, but we're also happy to get people from all kinds of other, other backgrounds, economics, law, history, international relations, um, whatever else. Uh, and ideally, they have an interest in working in national security policy and in, and in learning about it, and also some amount of background knowledge. It might just be you know, casually acquired background knowledge on, on AI and a willingness to think, think technically.
0: What other roles outside of the CSET in, in kind of security and uh, technology studies uh, uh, are, you, are you excited about uh, seeing, seeing people go into?
1: In general, I'm excited about seeing people go into roles in this space and taking with them an understanding of, of technology, especially of, of AI. So there's plenty of just, you know, roles in, in government, roles in Think tanks in D.C., so places like, you know, the Center for Security and International Studies, CSIS, I believe that's the right expansion of their <laughs> acronym, um, Center for New American Security, places like this that are sort of part of this conversation. I think it's really valuable to, yeah, be in this space and be learning about how to how to think through the kinds of problems that the national security establishment is is preoccupied with.
0: Are there any other academic departments other, other than CSET or are you kind of uh, the, the the obvious, the obvious one?
1: Yeah, I think we're the obvious one if you're interested in U.S. national security policy. Um, There's obviously the Center for the Governance of AI at Oxford, which is looking more at kind of a little bit bigger picture issues and a little bit more global.
0: What about the Leverholm Center for the um, Future of AI?
1: Uh, Future of Intelligence? Yeah, so they're at Cambridge University. Yeah, again, I think they're also, they do a fair amount of work with the U.K. government. So if you're a a British citizen or interested in, in the U.K. angle, that would be a good place for sure.
0: For American citizens, what about just going and working in kind of relevant government agencies or the intelligence services or the, or the military directly?
1: Yeah, I think that's a great idea. I believe 80,000 Hours actually has articles on the kinds of steps you might want to take before that, what kinds of degrees it might be good to get. And yeah, I think then going and getting that that experience directly is is really valuable. Certainly something, you know, we're, we're hoping that research fellows working at CSAT will be able to go on and, and later take on government positions. And we notice a real difference in kind of approach and, and background context between people who have worked in some kind of government agency and and seen how things work on the ground in practice and people who are, have not yet had that experience. So I think that's extremely valuable.
0: Yeah, what kinds of things should people who want to go into this field uh, be learning about now, other than, I guess, obviously, kind of machine learning, technical understanding? Are, are there things that just kind of assumed common knowledge that 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 you will need to kind of fit in, in this in this scene?
1: Yeah, I definitely think it's valuable to learn about... You know, military history, current military operations and and national security policy, cybersecurity and and things like that. There's, you know, a lot to know there and a lot to understand. And I think having a a detailed model of what the concerns and considerations and norms and, you know, common concepts are is absolutely necessary.
0: Yeah, that's something that uh, I guess people have like an academic interest in uh, yeah technology and security or like perhaps have primarily a focus on machine learning or AI that they tend to lack. They don't like, they don't haven't paid so much attention to international relations or, you know, um, history of war.
1: Yeah, that's right. I mean, it's it's very much a, a, a case of, you know, any given field having a lot of detail and a lot of depth. And so if you're coming at it as an outsider, I think there's a great XKCD comic about this actually. Um, coming at it as an outsider, it's easy to think that you sort of have, to have a good sense of things when actually you don't. So in the same way that, you know, folks from DC might sort of want to talk about like A, AI as a thing. And that might be frustrating for people with a more technical background who want to say, like, well, what are we talking about? Are we talking about, you know, deep learning? Are we talking about, like, do you want to talk about convolutional neural networks? Like, want, what's going on?
0: Advanced statistics. Yeah. Right.
1: <laughs> <laughs> um, similarly, I think it can be very frustrating if people come in and, and say things like, oh, well, you know, the US government should, or like even, you know, the State Department should, or the Department of Defense should, you know, do XYZ. And instead, uh, it's much more helpful if you can come in and really understand how things get done and how decisions get made and, and make suggestions for very specific ways that things could go differently.
0: Yeah. Does that mean that potentially just getting any role in the US government and building experience of like how these organizations work uh, might be helpful, even if it's like not as directly related to yeah, technology and security as you, as you might like?
1: Yeah, my sense would be that that's, that's basically right. I think there, you know, you would want to try and get advice from someone who is familiar with, with the space to check that, you know, you're, I'm sure that some roles come with expectations of, oh, well, if you've done this, then maybe you want to do this in the future. And so then maybe you're not such a good fit for this other role. So you'd want to have, you know, have some awareness about what kinds of like transfers are possible. But I certainly think that fundamentally, that's right.
0: Are there any other uh, kind of skills or, or experience that would um, help someone you know, have, a, have a productive and valuable career in AI policy and, and, and strategy uh, that, that uh, you think is worth highlighting?
1: Yeah, I, I think maybe the main one we haven't talked about much so far is just the importance in government work and in policy work in getting buy-in from all kinds of different audiences with all kinds of different kind of needs and, and goals. So being able to understand if you're trying to, you know, put out some policy document, who needs to sign off on that? What considerations they're considering? You know, an, an obvious example is if you're working with members of Congress, they care a lot about re-election. So that's like a sort of straightforward example. But anyone you're working with in any given agency is going to have, you know, different goals that they're trying to fulfill. And so if you can try and navigate that space, it's sort of a complicated social problem. And so being able to being able to do that effectively, I think, is a huge difference between people who can, you know, have an impact in government and, and who have more trouble.
0: Yeah, paying attention to the specific uh, organizational incentives of different people is something you have to do in any any organization. Do you think it's like even more the case or maybe it's just a more complicated calculation in, in, in government careers?
1: I think it's mostly that the U.S. government is a larger bureaucracy than you'll find just about anywhere. So I don't think I think it's as you say it's the same types of problems that you would encounter in any large firm or large university or something like that. And it's just that the the scale is is especially large.
0: I guess does that mean that you're often kind of uh, interacting with people whose incentives you don't really understand? It's like you know, when you go into an office at first, you don't quite understand what different people's goals are. Or, yeah, what like who they're accountable to. Uh, and I suppose, this, yeah, if you're constantly interacting with new people, then it's always a little bit opaque. Like, what, what the hell's going on?
1: Yeah, that seems right. Though I don't know. I'm, I feel the need to say that this is certainly a skill that I would like to gain and experience. I would like to to gather because I, you know, personally haven't worked in the U.S. government. Obviously,
0: are there any kind of entry level positions here that it might be worth mentioning, or like ways of kind of meeting people or getting some relevant experience to get your foot in the door? If if you're not, you know, yet qualified to take the potentially the, the more advanced positions at CSET.
1: I would guess that the best thing to do is to enroll in grad school and look for internships. Um, there's a, a really like well-established culture in D.C. of taking on interns in the summer, and that's just a good way. You know, Often the work that you're doing is, is not that exciting. It's maybe going to events and taking notes or you know, things like that. But it's a great way to, to meet people and to get established in the space and get a sense of, of how things work. And I think if you're serious about working in this space, you're going to need a, a graduate degree of some kind anyway.
0: Yeah, which, which, which graduate degrees? I guess you got like master's in public administration, I guess so security studies, or possibly even a PhD in security studies.
1: Yeah, it depends a little bit on the role. And I think actually 80,000 Hours has, has some good articles on this that, that list more in detail. Uh, I'm actually about to start a master's in security studies at Georgetown, so I obviously oh, think that that's a good program. Johns Hopkins, SAIS, uh, has a really well-respected Master of Arts in International Relations, yeah, programs in law degrees are actually very respected for, for policy careers. And then depending on the, the position that you would hope to end up in, maybe maybe a master's is fine or maybe you want, you want a PhD. I guess one other route that I would mention is for people with a STEM background and especially a STEM PhD, there are established programs to take kind of technical people and inject them into policy roles. So the most well-known one is the AAAS Fellowship. Uh, There's also Tech Congress, which takes people from tech backgrounds and puts them into congressional offices as staffers. Uh, And There's, I think, a couple others along those lines. So if you're eligible for a program like that, that's also a really great way to, to dive into the space.
0: Yeah, I guess uh, we, we might cut this section a little bit shorter than we might otherwise do it because, as you said, we've got uh, like several pretty lengthy and detailed articles about, yeah, um, especially USAI policy careers, uh, which which we'll link to in the show notes. And uh, if you're interested in going into the area, then you absolutely should read. And we've also talked a little bit about this in some previous interviews that I'll uh, I'll pitch in the uh, in the outro after after the interviews over. Um, if you would like to learn more, okay, let's uh, turn to talking about uh, China and your experience in China and what you managed to learn about it, uh, if, if anything, in, in your in your nine months there. Yeah, did you learn very much while you were there? Kind of in, in informs your your work t- today, or is it? Is it? I guess I, I do wonder whether like living in a country for nine months, you know, one wants to be modest about how much how much one can like realistically understand uh, Chinese culture and history.
1: Yeah, absolutely. I I think it was extremely interesting and extremely valuable, and I'm really glad I did it. But I feel in no way qualified to you know call myself an expert on China or claim that I learned you know these ten you know, top 10 tips for understanding Chinese AI policy. Number one,
0: the food is really good.
1: (laughs) (laughs) That's definitely number one. Um, So, no, I mean, I feel like I kind of got a better sense of stuff like what companies are thought of, like how do people think of the different companies or the different like products that those companies make or you know what do people tend to talk about and tend not to talk about certainly got a, a much better sense of how censorship works and how the great firewall works and so on again as good a sense as you can get in nine months which is not very good but better than nothing hopefully
0: <laughs> Right. well maybe something you did manage to learn a bunch about what might be the expat community in in a in beijing right that's right yeah so presumably that's like more like ten thousand people or maybe even less than that what, what did you learn about the expat community
1: Um, A friend of mine uh, who lived in who is still in Beijing, actually, and and lived there for a few years, commented to me that the expat community in China is a really uh, fun mix of people who are really smart and thoughtful and, uh, you know, thinking ahead and recognize that China is going to be a important player in the future and people who are just kind of odd and like maybe couldn't have made it elsewhere and like can come to China and, and find something interesting to do.
0: Um, I, yeah, I've heard that there's this phenomenon. I, I've had some friends who've gone and lived in China. There's a phenomenon of, yeah, Westerners going and living in China. And initially, I think the Chinese were kind of impressed with uh, Westerners because they assumed that they must be very successful to be going overseas. And then they realized that very often these are people who are kind of coming there because their life hadn't been going so well in the West. <laughs> and, and maybe the reputation of expats uh, went, went a little bit downhill there. I'm not <laughs> sure not sure whether you have, you've heard that narrative.
1: I haven't heard that specific story. Certainly. You know, uh, you know, two decades ago, when there were far fewer um, foreigners in China, there are all kinds of stories of, you know, getting hired to go and stand at some expo and just like be <laughs> the white person for this company, um, which is much less common now. But I I would guess that it's much less common just because foreigners are, are, are more visible. A dozen. It was actually uh, something I found surprising, though it was obvious in retrospect, was... I'm used to when I'm in a foreign country. If I go to a you know some kind of tourist location, that there's going to be lots of English signage. There's going to be lots of foreigners. People are going to be super used to seeing like all kinds of different sort of faces and and different types of people there. But because domestic tourism is so huge in China, you know they have maybe a billion people who uh, are able to move around the country and, and visit the cities. The tourist sites in in Beijing, for example, uh, are just a real hub for people coming from the countryside. So, whereas in most of Beijing, people are used to seeing foreigners roaming around in these tourist sites. Firstly, there's hardly any English signage because the vast majority of people coming there are Chinese. But secondly, those were always the places where people would still stop and stop me and ask for my photo, and would kind of point and stare, uh, which I didn't get at all in, in Beijing. So that was, I guess, a little bit of a um, a little bit of a flip from what I was expecting.
0: Among the like the more accomplished, I guess, China watchers who are, who are living in in Beijing, what, what did you learn about that community?
1: I'm not sure that there are that many people who live in Beijing that I met. I think largely the people that I now follow on these kinds of issues, I I just follow on Twitter and they're sort of spread throughout, um, some in China, some in in the West, for some reason, some in like Vietnam and Thailand. I guess maybe they're like more fun places to live while still being close to East Asia. That's definitely, I I think that was definitely something that I do feel I was able to learn a bit more about during my time there was sort of who is in that space and uh, what kinds of opinions they have, and uh, who I think is kind of more or less uh, sort of thoughtful about about things, and that that's something that I'm I'm definitely continuing to keep an eye on.
0: Just on the light side, do you have any advice for people who want to go to China as a as a tourist? The eighty thousand hours of team actually uh, went to China for uh, a month uh, back in I think two thousand fifteen. We lived in Chengdu and, and worked from there. It was pretty challenging actually working using kind of Google Drive and Docs and, uh, and WhatsApp and all of that, uh, given that it was kind of blocked by the by the firewall. But we, we managed to use VPNs to kind of make it work. I've got to say, like Chengdu was amazing. Uh, the, the food's incredible. Um, yeah. The people were really friendly. Uh, uh, yeah, ha- happy to see us. And it was just to be honest, like a much nicer and like better organized city than practically like even like the <laughs> richest cities I've been to in America or, or the UK or Australia. Uh, Maybe that was a very non-typical experience, but
1: no, I've heard great things about Chengdu. I didn't didn't get to go there, but I would I would love to. Um, and certainly, Sichuanese food is incredible. Tips: I mean, definitely sort out your VPN before you get there because you <laughs> can't do it once you've arrived. I, I do think that finding someone who can who can show you around a little bit who speaks Chinese will just open up. Things that you might not notice if you're trying to kind of navigate by yourself, you know, compared to say traveling in Europe, it's it's more difficult to travel there if you only speak English. Shanghai is pretty achievable, but even Beijing, and I would certainly assume Chengdu would be pretty pretty challenging if, if you did not speak Chinese. I know that Ben yeah. Todd, who I assume is with you, is, yeah. is a good Chinese speaker.
0: Fortunately, surprisingly, yeah, two of two of my colleagues at the time, uh, well, one of them spoke Chinese like really quite well, and the other spoke it like passably, you know, well, well enough to be a tourist because they'd both both lived in China before. So we were surprisingly a yeah, China familiar group. Uh, although I had a very hard time, I couldn't speak to the taxi driver. I couldn't speak to anyone most of the time. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. I noticed uh, that over the last few weeks, you'd been um, tweeting a few supportive things about the the protests in in Hong Kong that have been going on at the moment. Do you ever worry about uh, like saying things like that and potentially yeah, expressing opinions about Chinese policy? Uh, potentially meaning that it's harder to get a visa to to go to China, or just antagonizing even the context that you have within within China.
1: Yeah, it's definitely something that I think about, like how much I should be self censoring on these topics. It's probably difficult to hold and express positions that both the Chinese government and the U.S. government will think are acceptable. And so I think at some point you need to, as someone working in this space, think through to what extent you want to leave open the option of spending a lot of time in China, interacting a lot with Chinese experts. Because if you want to do that, then you're probably going to need to self-censor a lot more. So I don't know. I, I, I guess I don't see that as likely to be a huge part of my career. I would love to take opportunities to do that where possible. But I mean, there's so much so much that the CCP is doing that I think is really awful. And that I and I don't think the, the return to staying silent about that is is big enough to to justify it. So I, I will continue to to post about things like the protests in Hong Kong, the concentration camps in, in Xinjiang, and, and so on.
0: Do you think it's actually realistic that yeah, tweeting about how you support the protesters in Hong Kong would mean that you might not be able to get a visa there? I mean, of course, there's like 2 million people in China, in a sense, who are going out and doing these protests, and they're not going to like uh, they're not going to arrest them all, and they're not, probably not going to like kick them all out of the country either. So, <laughs> I definitely <laughs> you know, think r- that- raising an eyebrow there. Yeah,
1: <laughs> they might arrest some of them. Mm. Um, I definitely think that having a history of saying anti-Chinese things probably makes my chances worse. I don't know how much worse. The situation on this is changing pretty rapidly. You know, for journalists, for example, a journalist is really the case where there's a lot of scrutiny uh, applied to sort of your your past record and trying to figure out if you're going to come in and just say bad things about China. And and certainly there have been several cases recently of journalists at major outlets not having their visas renewed for similar reasons. So it's a little harder to say, given that I wouldn't be applying for a journalist visa. But unfortunately, (laughs) on the the visa application form for, for China, you have to check what kind of work you're doing and there are little different sections. Um, And there's one section off on the side where the options are journalist, uh, like religious worker basically, and uh, NGO worker. And so those are like the three risky categories of like people who might be coming in to try and change minds. And unfortunately, I believe as a as an employee of Georgetown, I would count as an NGO worker. But um, I might see if there was a different category that I fit in, since it's not not really a typical typical NGO.
0: Another concern that we hear is kind of the exact reverse of this, which as you were alluding to, it seems like rather than uh, being too critical of China, potentially being viewed as kind of uh, too too cozy with China and yeah, I've understood that the U.S. might be, as you're saying, less likely to to give you a security clearance if you've spent too much time in China or perhaps have too many, um, you know, close Chinese contacts. How yeah, how do you thread the needle here between kind of having a great familiarity with China, if that's something, if you want to be, you know, a specialist in that area, and you know, actually being able to to use those skills by and get a security clearance or even a even a position in the U.S. government.
1: Yeah, I definitely think it's it's a shame that the existing infrastructure that the U.S. has built in order to protect itself from counterintelligence threats and and so on does mean that a lot of the people working on China day-to-day have not spent that much time in China, if any, and they're certainly not traveling there for their work because, you know, it causes a massive headache with, with clearances if you're planning to travel to a country like that. But I believe that uh, one of the biggest concerns in a clearance application process, for example, is whether you have close and ongoing contacts with nationals of that country. And so what I hope and what I believe has been the case for others is that it's possible to spend time in China and just not maintain uh, contact with, with people that you may have met there to make it clear on your on your clearance application process that may, although you may have spent time there to, to learn, we don't have any kind of conflicts of interest or any potential for you know, sabotage by some buddy of yours who who happens to be um It's gonna blackmail you or something. Right.
0: I mean, maybe I'm just being really naive here, but isn't it like pretty strange to think that you know an American who's grown up in America, or yeah, an Australian who's grown up in Australia, is going to go to China and hang out there for a year or two, like make some Chinese friends, and it's going to be so sympathetic to like Chinese communism or the Chinese system that they would like side side with them and yeah become like counterintelligence agents. I mean, yeah, maybe this just has happened from time to time, and like one person is just so damaging that they have to be very cautious. But yeah, it does seem to me like I guess as a naive outsider, it seems to me like it's not a great trade-off, you know, trying to try to protect yourself from that at the cost of the fact that like. Most most of your China experts have barely spent any time in China.
1: Yeah, I mean, it's definitely a matter of the trade-off. I don't think it's crazy to expect that that, that there will be cases of that. I think there's a long history of, uh, you know, foreign countries recruiting US nationals to, to spy for them essentially. Um, so I think it's not at all crazy to, to be concerned about that. And as you say, that the, the issue is at what cost? And my guess is that the US is currently not hitting that trade-off at the optimal spot, but uh, it's very hard to say. And it's especially hard to say without access to all of the classified information that exists on this.
0: Yeah, it seemed in the past like Soviet communism really did have some ideological draw for for, for people in the West. Yeah, it, it seems hard for me to imagine that Americans going to in America are going to be like that attracted to Xi Jinping thought that they're going to be yeah, very keen to side <laughs> with China. But yeah, maybe, maybe we'll drop that point. I guess I'm, I'm not really in a position to judge.
1: I mean, you could also be doing it for reasons other than ideological uh, commitment, right?
0: Yeah, sp- oh, I guess. Like, sometimes <laughs> I forget about that because <laughs> I'm <laughs> such an ideologically driven person. Um, so pure. <laughs> yeah, so... What do you think people get uh, most wrong about China? I imagine there's kind of a lot of misunderstandings that people have, both kind of about their like the government's intentions or just about like yeah what, what the culture is like.
1: Yeah, I mean, I think a big one in this space is underestimating the extent to which the Chinese Communist Party is thinking about stability and control uh, as their real primary goal. I think... It's really easy from an American perspective to be thinking about Cold War analogies where you know the Soviet Union had this, this ideology that it really wanted to spread to the entire world and it was really very actively hostile to the U.S. As, as a sort of opposing ideology. It's easy to kind of slot China into that mold, and I don't think it's an especially good fit, which is not to say that I, I think there's nothing for the U.S. to be concerned about, but I think it's really important to uh, recognize how much effort... China is going to continue to put into that sort of population control issue. And there's kind of two ways you could you could interpret that. One could be, and I think maybe a common one is, oh, you know, they care a lot about population control, so they're going to develop surveillance technologies and they're going to develop all this stuff that's going to help them then also internationally. A different way, which actually makes more sense to me, is to think, oh, they care so much about this population control stuff and it's going to need such a large proportion of their attention and their resources that they're going to have less left over to think about international issues. You know, either one could be right, but honestly, the second one seems more logical to me i guess we'll see
0: yeah again with the with the ideology i suppose it's like soviet communism was kind of yeah an expansionary ideology that, that has hopefully this vision of like spreading itself to like help most of the world by, by turning a communist guess you're just saying china doesn't really have that anymore like they're not aiming to like uh yeah ideologically convert people outside of china it's, it's it's not a great interest and so i suppose to some extent in as much as we don't mess with like their goals inside of china uh, there's like potentially not not that much conflict between like the us and china or at least they're, they're, they're they they need not be
1: I'm not sure that I would put it that simply, but I I think there's, you know, work needed to be done to figure out, for example, you know, if China is able to, if the sort of balance of naval forces between China and the US changes, what does that imply for things like, you know, Taiwan? Or what does it imply for the South China Sea? I don't think that's sort of immediately straightforward that they're just going to like stick right within their boundaries. They're definitely very concerned about being able to protect their borders and, and maintain their territorial integrity. But yes, I do think it's very different from the Soviet threat.
0: There's been a lot of uh, hyperventilation over the last year or two about kind of the Chinese government's investments in ML and kind of they're going to like try to yeah, yeah yeah beat the United States. Is that accurate? Is, is the government like making a huge push to kind of be a, be a world leader in, in machine learning uh, research?
1: Uh, yeah. Okay. <laughs> <are>. okay cool. <laughs> I think they are. So, um, so a that's whole, just right. <laughs> there's a whole other discussion you could have about how likely they are to succeed and, and what parts will succeed and so on. Yeah. But no, I, I think there's no doubt that they are taking more concerted and sort of more serious action than the U.S. government is.
0: Do they view that as kind of a military or strategic thing, or is that more of an economic move?
1: Their messaging is certainly almost entirely economic. It's hard to, you know, look at that external messaging and make, draw strong conclusions about their motives. But yeah, I mean, I guess this is another thing that was, was interesting in spending time in China was that there is so little discussion of, of sort of arms races or AI races there. And it's much more about how do we sort of take advantage of this great potential boon, yeah. again, at least in the sort of public messaging.
0: So maybe you you might have been out of sense like a bit of skepticism for me uh, about some of these like AI strategy issues. I I do wonder like how much of this idea of like, yeah, like an AI arms race between the US and China is just kind of a fantasy in in our heads that like maybe people have like gotten really excited about in the US, but is like just not actually happening in real life.
1: Yeah, I, I think the way that I've found it more helpful to think about, which I think is actually... More prevalent in, in DC even is thinking of AI as one aspect of this larger U.S. China competition. So I definitely think that it is a real thing that you know China is growing in wealth and military power and is sort of taking a, a new place on the world stage that it hasn't had in a long time. And I think that absolutely has implications for the U.S. And AI is sort of this interesting kind of subpart of that larger trend. Uh, I think sometimes it, AI can kind of seem glamorous and exciting and can end up occupying more of the discussion than it deserves. But um, I think that overall framing makes a little more sense to me.
0: Even looking more broadly, how much do you think there's perhaps like a bias in the United States or just just among everyone to kind of like be scared of this like new country, rising powers, like different ethnicity, different language? It's very easy to get potentially spooked by China, even though it like perhaps doesn't really have like it doesn't actually pose a material threat to like anything that we care about all that much.
1: Yeah, I think there's something to that. I also think something that I worry about a little is there being too much attention paid to how to stop this trend or how to reverse this trend, as opposed to figuring out whether it will be possible. And if it won't be possible to stop, if the trend is just there to stay, sort of then how to build a kind of new international equilibrium that is still acceptable for US interests, that includes a, a more powerful and richer China. You know for. The vast majority of U.S. history, the U.S. has not been you know, a global hegemon with, with no rival superpower. That's really just the last 30 years or so. And so I think thinking about U.S. interests as opposed to U.S. supremacy would better serve U.S. interests. Um, and that's something that I would love to see more part of the conversation. I, I think it's a little bit heretical still to try and have discussions about accommodation. Um, yeah, I'm not sure I would love that term, but about sort of looking realistically at what is the situation we're going to have to deal with and how can we make the best of that situation.
0: I've been worrying over the last year or two. I mean, there's like lots of things that, that Trump is doing that I'm not a huge fan of. But I wonder whether kind of switching the US-China relationship from like primarily one of like trade and economic relationship and kind of a sense to some extent of collaboration and like perhaps a more hopeful message that they're going to like work together to create a 21st century that's like good for both sides into a more like antagonistic relationship, both from a like military and strategic point of view and, and from a trade point of view, that that could be like one of the biggest like negative long term effects uh, that, 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 that Trump has just by like yeah, reducing the sense of like a common good goodwill between, between those countries. Is that something that, that, that concerns uh, you as well?
1: I'm not sure. I mean, honestly, I think that that change was probably inevitable. And so I would more take issue with the way that Trump has gone about that rather than the fact that it has shifted to that kind of relationship. Specifically, I think there was a real missed opportunity to kind of take stock of looking back on, so in the the 90s, basically, I guess, 80s, 90s, and and early 2000s, there was this process of China gradually integrating into the world economy, gradually integrating into sort of international political arrangements. And some things there have gone well, and some things have not gone so well. And I think there could have been a real moment of taking stock, looking back, saying, what is working? What is not working? How is China behaving fairly? And as a sort of responsible global actor, and how is it not? And then thinking about how to put sort of International pressure on China to come into a more reasonable position from the perspective of other countries. And I think it's really unfortunate that Trump has sort of made something like that shift, but he's made it very much from the perspective of America first, America versus China, you know, America winning, which really, you know, both is not very compelling for any of our allies or partners. And potentially directly fuels China in, in being able to, you know, it sort of becomes like a cheerleading contest instead of working towards a rule, rules based global order.
0: You said earlier that you thought it would be better for the US to promote a kind of values based message uh, when it's talking about China and, like, and the things that it doesn't like about what China's doing. How would that actually work from a strategic point of view? Can't China just be like, well, you talk about like, yeah democracy, you talk about like yeah civil liberties, but like kind of we just don't care?
1: Yeah, I mean, I, I think the trade issue is actually a, a decent example for that, where you can talk about, you know, having equal access and talk about the ways in which U.S. firms are restricted in China as, you know, setting up an unfair playing field and saying, look, if you want to be part of this global economy, you need to treat our firms the same way that we treat your firms. You can't just suddenly, you know, block a company from from working on your territory or, you know, talking about the Great Firewall, for example, from the perspective of global systems as opposed to the perspective of a U.S. interest I think that that could, uh, just provides a, a much firmer footing to make these criticisms. China's favorite thing to do is to say, oh, well, we're different. Like, we're, we're, we have our own civilization. We have our own history. Our own rules apply to us. And I think if the U.S.'s response to that is, well, no, the American way is better, it, it just doesn't land at all, right? Whereas if the response is, no, actually, these are principles that should apply everywhere. And here's why. And here's how you're not applying them. I think that can be a much more compelling message.
0: Do you have any views on kind of uh, the like tit for tat kind of retaliation that there's been a bit between like the, the US and China? Like, you know, you know the US is like trying to block Huawei. Like, China is like kind of pushes out American companies. Like, it gives gives them a hard time, imposes tariffs. Uh, Do you look at this, uh, you know, in the newspaper in the morning and be like, oh no, this is terrible, or are you just like, oh, this is something we can work around, or like it's overblown?
1: I think the biggest the biggest way in which it's harmful is that it devalues uh, national security concerns. So if uh, the administration one day says Oh, hey, you know, UK, Germany, you can't use Huawei in your networks. It's really a security threat. We're really concerned about this. We're looking out for you or your allies. You really need to pay attention. This is dangerous. And then the next day says, oh, you know, maybe we could just like make some arrangement about Huawei as part of our trade war, like it's no big deal. That just massively undermines our ability to make claims about security threats and have them be, be credible. And I think that kind of mixing of sort of trade interests and security interests has been really damaging.
0: Do you think Huawei actually is a security threat? Do you want to comment on that, or is it I don't know beyond, beyond your pay grade?
1: I yeah. uh, I don't I don't know enough about the, the telecom situation. My understanding is the issue is less are they a security threat, and more is there any possible alternative given how embedded they already are in four G systems and, um, and and the fact that there isn't really a, a a good competitor to them who can as cost effectively deliver really high quality networks. But again, not an expert.
0: So we recommend becoming a China specialist as uh, one of our kind of priority uh, career paths. Do you think that that is a very potentially high impact thing to do? Would you agree that's kind of sh- maybe should be on the, on the on the short list of most interesting career paths that that we have on the site?
1: I definitely think that learning about China and becoming familiar with China is very valuable. I don't love the framing of China specialist oh, because I think it I think it makes it sound as though you can just kind of <laughs> specialize in China and and sort of know about China and have that be your thing. Right. So I guess I would more advocate for doing something more specific. I certainly am not a China specialist, but I think it was really valuable that I gained some understanding of the country and that I continue to try and keep track of of what is going on there. Um, and learning the language was, was definitely helpful in that as well. So I think I would say learning about China is super valuable. Not sure that I totally understand the idea of like China specialist as a career track in itself.
0: Yeah, I guess it is kind of, we're trying to group together a whole bunch of different, a whole right. bunch of different paths. And actually it is a one of the challenges uh, with that profile, and I guess with advising people or you know suggesting this to them, is that it can be very hard to know then what what's the next step. because uh, it's, like, you know, it's like not a, it's like not a specific thing. It's kind of just a very broad class of things that you could learn about. Do you kind of have any suggestions maybe for for someone who wanted to kind of yeah try to get leverage in their career by studying an important topic like an emerging country like China? What what kinds of ways could they go about gaining at least some understanding, some amateur possibly like specialist understanding of, of China that would be useful in their career?
1: Yeah. I mean, if you want to, if you, if you know what country you want to learn about, for example, China, by far, I think the best thing to do is to to go and study there. Um, ideally, I, I think it usually works best to do some prep work in your home country, you know, learning about history and politics and learning some of the language. But then I think there is no substitute for for going to the place and enrolling in a language program or enrolling in a, best of all, is if you can have your language to the point where you can actually study substantively in, in country, which my, my Chinese was not good enough to do. Uh, and then the extent to which you want to, do that for a whole degree program or a really long period of time versus doing it for a shorter period of time, I think depends on whether you want to, I shouldn't, I shouldn't be too rude about the term China specialist. You know, there are roles which are based entirely around understanding China. Um, But I think you probably want to be choosing an angle, whether it be Chinese politics, you know, Chinese economy, uh, Chinese military policy, and and then specializing in that as well.
0: Yeah. Do you have any uh, particularly good kind of universities to study at in China or like potentially programs uh, where, where you study China in, in, in the West that, that are uh, worth doing?
1: I'm not sure that I have any great tips that aren't, aren't fairly obvious. Two well-known master's programs in, in China, in Beijing, are the Yenching Academy and the Schwarzman Scholarship, where you go and spend one year and earn a master's degree. Both of those have sort of slightly different reputations. Schwartzman is is known for being a little bit insular. So I think if you go there, you want to be really proactive about getting involved in the community outside of the college. Uh, But I think those can both be a great way to, they can be a great launching pad for spending time in China if you are able to make use of the resources that the program makes available to you. In terms of programs in the West, I know that Middlebury College has an intensive Chinese language program that has a good reputation where you take a a language pledge and, and only speak Chinese for the period that you're there. Yeah, I'm not familiar enough with with Chinese studies programs again because I'm you know not a China studies person to, <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. to make recommendations, unfortunately. <laughs>
0: yeah, no, I'm uh, slightly kind of grilling you for things you maybe only have a tenuous understanding of. But uh, <laughs> do you think that yeah, even having kind of the amateur level of understanding of China that, that you have is potentially a boost for your career in in DC or you know other governments around the world?
1: Yeah, I mean, the, the I think the cynical answer is yes because uh, everyone in, else knows even less. Yeah, or? essentially, um, it, I mean, it's 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 pretty similar to the the situation with machine learning. You know, similarly with machine learning, I I have kind of an advanced beginner sort of (laughs) (laughs) level of knowledge, and that's often just more than most other people in the room, and so is useful in that way.
0: Uh, You talked about learning Chinese. Yeah, just quickly, how far did you manage to get in kind of nine months of of intensive uh, Chinese study?
1: So I'd been um, actually uh, teaching myself for two or three years before I went over there. So... When I arrived, I, I had kind of a, a decent vocabulary in theory, but was very under practiced in uh, interacting with people in person. So my urge was always to sort of start a conversation and then they would say something, and I would want to sort of pause them for <laughs> one minute and like go away and think about what they said, and then like take another minute to formulate what I was gonna say and then go back and continue the conversation. Yeah. Not the most, you know, best way to connect with people.
0: <laughs> <laughs> well, it's just helping you to not make deep connections there.
1: <laughs> <laughs> Great for the clearance. Um, Uh, Luckily, that started to wear off after, you know, a month or two. And, uh, and also I was I was doing 20 hours of Chinese study per week. And so by the end, I was I was pretty pleased with where I got by the end of the year, I was in a place where I could have most sort of basic day to day conversations relatively well, you know, not sound like a genius or anything, but sort of, you know, convey meaning on many different topics. Professionally, it was a little bit more of a struggle, you know, I, I, went to a couple of conferences and was kind of able to sit in on, on conversations between Chinese participants and say sort of pretty basic things and roughly have the gist of what was going on. But, you know, certainly not like give a talk or anything like that.
0: Yeah. Usually I'm a little bit of a skeptic of learning languages because it seems like uh, like 90% of people who start learning a language kind of give it up before it actually they actually have enough <laughs> ability that they can gain any value from it. Would you recommend that people start Chinese or would you be like kind of discourage them a little bit so that really only the people who are like most motivated uh, even even start out on that journey?
1: I mean, I think maybe the thing I would say is that in my experience of learning languages, by far the most value comes when you can actually get in-country with already having a foundation under your belt. So you don't want to go to the country and start learning because then you'll be learning how to say like, hello, goodbye, how are you? Like, and wasting sort of that time where you could just really easily have done that externally. So I think maybe the thing I would say is if you're interested in learning a language, think about is there a time when you're going to be able to spend, you know, at least six months ideally longer, Uh, you know, ideally if I'd been focusing on Chinese, I would have spent at least two years there in the country immersed in it, really like cementing your skills. Because I think a lot of people learn languages and they only kind of learn in the classroom environment. And so they can kind of repeat these stock phrases or answer stock questions, but they never get to the point where they're really conversing and really feeling at home in the language. And I think you get there by spending time in country. So I guess my, my, my sort of litmus test would be if you want to learn this language, do you think it's likely that in the next few years you'll have time to spend a lot of time in country, really cementing it?
0: Can people get like long-term tourist visas or, or, or jobs in China? Like, if, if they can't get into you know a grad program there, how can they find an excuse to be there and, and talk to people?
1: So there are Chinese language programs. So what I did was a, a semester by semester program where there are basically no admission requirements uh, as long as you can pay like two thousand dollars per semester or something like that. You can get a student visa. Um, you can stay, I think, for as many semesters as you really want. Um, so that's pretty straightforward. I believe there's a some kind of 10-year visa specifically for Americans. I think it might be a business visa. I think you have to leave the country often. I believe it's for people who are making frequent trips. So I'm not sure that would be better than uh, just yeah. doing a student visa. Can you still
0: go there as an English teacher? I heard this was like a, a popular popular track in the past.
1: Yeah, there definitely seem to be plenty of people who do that I believe the working visa conditions have changed recently, but I'm not sure what the situation is for English teachers.
0: Okay, we're, we're coming up on time. You recently moved to D.C., I guess it was like six or 12 months ago?
1: That's right, about six months ago.
0: I've heard pretty bad things about D.C. as a place to live. It's like, what's its nickname? Like America's armpit or something like that for, <laughs> for, for the horrific weather that it has. It's like very muggy. How have you found living in D.C.? Is that something that you could recommend, at least tentatively, to people?
1: Yeah, I've, I've really enjoyed it so far. I mean, I, I love uh, medium-density housing is a random nerdy interest of mine. Um, and D.C. is much better on that front than either uh, San Francisco, or Beijing, the last two places I lived. And I don't know the weather. People people really complain about it, but after living in, in California where there are no storms, DC's thunderstorms are incredible. It's like, you know, several times a week you'll just get this amazing downpour and, and thunder and lightning, so if you're a fan of thunderstorms d c is your place
0: yes I spent a couple of years studying in in Canberra Australia' is like also kind of artificial capital city, and it has like some bad things, but like one thing it did have going for it was just like lots of really smart young people who are into politics and policy and like economics and kind of shared my interests is it does i guess d c has that going for it as well
1: yeah, definitely, and another big thing that uh, is really noticeable is the number of free institutions so the smithsonians are all free you can just go in and out and it's it's really lovely to have that and similarly free concerts and free performances um, which i feel like really changes how you interact with the city if you can just kind of show up and and take part in stuff without planning or paying it's really nice
0: People are probably com- constantly coming into and out of DC, like living there for a while then leaving. Does, does that make, make it like more of a like the social scene a bit more in flux? Such as it's easy to break into social networks, or, or does it potentially make it like alienating because like no one's there long enough to really you know become, form deep friendships?
1: I mean, definitely the the stereotype is that. Uh, everyone treats every like potential opportunity to make new friends as a networking opportunity. and it's always asking you know what you do and trying to figure out what you could give them. Um, that hasn't been my experience. I've met some really lovely people and and started to form some really nice friendships. So I don't know, I think it's a little bit what you make it.
0: Yeah, well, it's good, good good to hear that uh, DC's working out. Maybe maybe we can check back in in a, in a couple of years and see how how and said uh, are, are developing there. Sounds great. My guest today has been Helen Tona. Uh, thanks so much for coming on the podcast, Helen. Thanks, Rob. We have a number of other episodes on this topic. It's episode 31, Professor Defoe on defusing the political and economic risks posed by existing AI capabilities. Episode 54, OpenAI on publication norms, malicious uses of AI, and general purpose learning algorithms. Episode 1, Miles Brundage on the world's desperate need for AI strategists and policy experts. And then on some related topics, we also have episode 57, Tom Khalil on how to do the most good in government. And episode 44. Dr. Paul Cristiano on how we'll hand the future off to AI and solving the alignment problem. Moving on from podcasts, there's also our article, The Case for Building Expertise to Work on US AI Policy and How to Do It, which we'll link to in the show notes as always. Finally, as I mentioned at the start of the episode, the 80,000 Hours Job Board currently lists fully 70 jobs relating to AI strategy and governance for you to browse and consider applying for, so uh, go have at it, folks. The 80,000 Hours Podcast is produced by Kieran Harris. Thanks for joining. Talk to you in a week or two.